Righto. Today's episode, we were lucky enough to sit down for a few hours with absolute champion of a fella by the name of Donnie Vincent. If you don't know who Donnie is, jump online, check out some of his amazing adventure films, Winds of Attic, The Rivers Divide. They're incredible. The cinematography and the narration by Donnie himself is uh, unparalleled. Like the, It's just incredible to watch. So jump on and have a look at those if you don't know who Donnie is. I think you'll pick up quickly during the podcast that you know Donnie's passion for life and living it to the force in the outdoors is just unparalleled. The amount of knowledge and experience that he has had, he's done over 50 trips to the Arctic Circle and Alaska, and he has truly lived the, the life, oh, true meaning of life, of living it in the outdoors. He's an absolute champion. He's one of the best guys you'll ever meet. We spent over four hours talking even after we stopped recording the episode at 4 a.m. in the morning, we're still talking, so it was pretty cooked the next day. But yeah, hope, hopefully you guys enjoy this one. Just quickly before we get into it, I just want to say thanks to those that have reached out, uh, sent me messages and uh, messages of support, and yeah, it's nice to hear that people are resonating with some aspects of the show or, or they like sort of some of the content that we're and some of the guests we're putting out. So yeah, quick shout out to Reese from Novi's Adventures, Jesse Frames, Max, and a young fellow by the name of Darcy who reached out for a little bit of life advice and uh, yeah, just some ideas about getting into spearfishing and uh, maximizing his time with work and spearfishing and stuff like that. So I read and responded to all of them and uh, yeah, it's pretty humbling to hear from people. So yeah, thanks heaps for reaching out. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get into it. Here is Donnie Vincent. This is the Stork Outdoors podcast. I'm Andy. Join me as I sit down with Spiros, bow hunters, fishing fanatics, and adventure lovers from around the world, sharing their tips, tricks, and stories as they choose to live a life down the path less troubled. Right, here we go. Donnie Vincent, it's great to have you on, mate. You're a hard man to track down. Yeah, sorry about that. I, uh, I appreciate being on, man. This is really cool. Yeah, I've been bugging you for a little while, probably a few months now, uh, to try and get you on, mate. But uh, no, like I said, it's a pleasure to have you on and I'm looking forward to the episode. If you, uh, if you could contact me in any other way besides using a computer, you would have got me right away, but I really disdain opening a computer. <laughs> man of my own heart, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I, I have it. I've seen recently, mate, you've been on the mats with a bit of jujitsu stuff. Uh is that something you've just started and how are you finding it, mate? Yeah, I started um I started probably uh about a year ago and uh it's not a consistent year because I travel so much, right? In the fall. I'm gone so often that I, I can't train, but uh in the in the in the beginning I started Started out, I found a really great gym in the town that I live in, Hudson, uh, Wisconsin, called Alliance. And um, the instructor there, Brian Olson, he's an amazing man, uh, Olympian for years and years for the United States in judo, and then and then now is a black belt. Uh, I think several degrees over in jujitsu. But anyway, yeah, man, it's uh, it's been life changing. To be honest with you, I, w- I walked in there as as another way, another form of fitness, and then I've always wanted to technically learn how to fight. I've always felt like I had the mentality of a, a warrior and things that I've always addressed in my life and how I've always carried myself. But um, just in the modern era of learning from you know different people that are talented and and tested and and trained, uh, you know, I quickly realized that there's trained. And there's untrained and, um, and I wanted to fall on the side of trained and everything that I do, 
or I want to fall on the side of trained. And it's been life changing. Honestly, it's been, it has had as almost as great an impact on my life as hunting has because of the community of fighters that I found on the mat. Mm -hmm. And I went from training twice a week to now when I'm in town, I'll train, uh, five, six, seven hours a week. And it's been, it's, it's been remarkable. Can be quite humbling, right? In the beginning. (laughs) Oh, it's quite humbling every single time. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I take, uh, generally I do three types of classes. I'll do a fundamentals class, which is of course like choreography, right? Mm -hmm. Moving through the, motion then i'll take an intermediate class which is uh about 10 minutes of fundamentals and or 20 minutes of fundamentals and then 30 to 40 minutes of all out basically 100 percent rolling and then i take another class uh, on saturday mornings which is about an hour and 15 minutes of like straight full rolling and it's uh, i don't care who it's against a blue belt other you know a double stripe white belt whatever who has 50 pounds of muscle on me whatever it is it's um it's two things. I found two things and I'm not talking macho. One, it's incredibly humbling. And um, if you think you can fight your way out of any situation, you're absolutely dead wrong. Hmm. A and B, it's also remarkable. I found for myself, although with my background, it wasn't a total surprise, but I'm remarkably comfortable being in very uncomfortable positions. Hmm. Yeah, and you often find yourself, uh, I spent a little bit of time over the years, I got me, uh, I got the old purple there, mate, about ooh, a couple of years ago now, to be honest. I had to dust the cobwebs off, actually. I went looking for it tonight because uh, I haven't, I've been out of the game for a couple of years now, like probably about, uh, yeah, nearly two years. Just, I was taking up all these new things and I had to give, something I had to give, but I was having a bit of arthritis yeah. in my hands and stuff. But yeah, like you said, yeah, it can be quite humbling. And the community, uh, it seems like that in the same, in the hunting community and like I have a dive focus with the spearfishing and stuff. These communities of people, you meet some great humans, right? Oh, the best. Uh, the community of men, if you would have asked me if men like this existed in my town, I probably would have shrugged my shoulders because the guys that I see walking down the street, not that you can judge a book by its cover, certainly I've learned that as well. <laughs> but the guys you see walking down the street and um, and certainly the guys you see standing outside of bars, not that I'm one that really goes to bars, but you see guys standing outside of bars, you know, kind of shrugging my shoulders. But the men that I found in this gym, in this community, uh, warriors, mm. absolute warriors, you know, what, whether they're chubby or shredded warriors. Doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, that's the thing. I, uh, I remember when I first rocked up, you know, there'd be – I'm not a big guy, but there was, you know, there'd be a you know, really small, slender sort of a, a, a guy or even a girl, for instance, and then they will be handing your ass to you on a platter on those open mat nights, man. And you're like, holy shit, I got to get better at this. I, I just, I got to learn oh. this stuff, right? <laughs> like just the li- just the littlest mm. nerdy guy, mm. you know, call it, you know, just kill tear you, you off. Mm. Oh, it's been it's been so rewarding, man. And yeah, like you said. Uh, good times, mate. Yeah, I did see that, and I thought oh, I sort of resonated with that a little bit. But yeah, I was keen to, yeah. you know, the people that I speak to about it. Yeah, it's definitely that real community spirit, and leaving that ego at the door. You know, it's a real big one. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. Moving on a little bit there. So you've obviously lived a life heavily focused in the outdoors and uh, a lot of travel and uh, etc. In your life, what does that lifestyle mean to you? And yeah, how important is is that lifestyle to you, mate? Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's not a lifestyle. 
Andy, it's it's uh, it's my heartbeat. It's my breath. And I, I know that sounds contrived, but really just being outside and seeing the mountains and seeing the prairies, deserts, wherever I happen to be. I was, I was standing yesterday, um, yesterday at this time, a little bit later than this. Yesterday, I was standing uh, next to the ocean in Alaska watching beluga whales feed on, on uh, salmon. It has nothing to do with hunting. I was just standing there in the in the in the you know early fall sun, late summer sun, and I was watching a pod of beluga whales and uh and two pilot whales uh, chase down salmon and feed on them in Kachemak Bay, Alaska, and and I'm back in Wisconsin now. But it's been everything for me, whether it be uh, when I was a little kid and and looking for frogs or snakes or even just just watching ducks fly overhead. It, it didn't matter. It was, it was literally all I wanted to do was hunt and fish and, uh, and be around wildlife. And it, and really what it boils down to, I get a lot of guys that write letters to me or whatever. And, and, um, and I appreciate it and love it, but they'll write to me and say, I'm absolutely sick for hunting. You know, I want to hunt. That's all I ever want to do. How do I get to do what you do for a career? And it's not that I'm sick for hunting. It's really that I'm, crazy to be in these wild systems and to watch caribou and grizzly bears and moose i would i want to be around them i don't necessarily have to hunt them the the hunting part of it just comes from inside of me of wanting to wanting to start a fire at a cabin wanting to watch my arrow go into a moose and watch that moose die quickly so i you know i i see myself skinning it i see myself i don't just see myself holding this massive rack and and putting photos on Instagram and saying, Oh, everyone look at me. I killed a 70 inch moose. I want to, I don't, I don't care one iota about that. I want to touch the moose's antlers. I want to, I want to skin the moose. I want to see how difficult it is to peel the meat off the carcass and the weight of it to carry it back to camp. And I want to cook it over a frying pan and look up at the night sky. That's it. To me, it's just being alive is, is living. My life is doing that stuff. And so it's, you know, it's not a hobby or anything like that. It's just, just uh just truly who i am man that's awesome bro how did this begin were there early influences influences like was you did your dad get you into this sort of stuff like did you spend a lot of time as a kid a- outdoors or how did that play out <clears throat> yeah so my dad it, it's really hard um and i'm not i'm not crazy uh close with my dad i am but uh we don't have the type of relationship where we talk every week and we talk about everything which uh, you know, I wish we did, but it's just, it's just not in the cards. Um, but my dad had a really fantastic book collection when I was growing up, his, his, uh, his parents bought him a, a book subscription. And for whatever reason, my dad was really good at collecting all these different books on, uh, both on war. He had several books on war. My dad was in the Navy and then he had a lot of books on wilderness survival and, and uh, outdoor cooking and fishing, hunting, wildlife, things like this, Audubon books, all these different, you know, birding books and, and just general wildlife books. And then, and so I, I just lived in that bookshelf and, and my dad had a collection of guns in a, in a walnut gun case in the corner that had, uh, it's a type of gun case that just had two glass sheets of glass with a lock in the middle. And, and so I, I was kind of able to put all the pieces together. The books gave me the inspiration to want to be in the wilderness and gave me the inspiration to even um, be a warrior. It wasn't until recently that I actually tied these two things together because I have quite an affinity for 
people in law enforcement. I have quite an affinity for uh, military uh, warriors, soldiers, men and women that fight for the United States or even fight for countries of, of our allies. And, and, um, and it's always kind of tied into one for me is, um, you know, when I meet a Navy SEAL, when I meet Army Rangers or whatever that I'm, I'm happy to be filming with or working with, I just kind of see a hunter. And uh, I know that's strange to say, but that's, that, that's what I, how I kind of identify with them is, uh, even though whether they hunt or not, I just, I see a hunter. And so these books gave me this great inspiration. Uh, my dad would hunt once, twice, three times a year. And just seeing him kind of pack up gear and leave with his buddies and then come back. And, and I'd try to pry, my dad's not a big talker, but I would pry a uh, story from him of, Hey, did you see any deer? Did you, did you shoot any grouse, you know, and he would, yeah, you know, Hey, we got two, or he'd tell me little tidbits and I'd have to kind of piece all this together. But, um, all of that was fantastic inspiration of, of what I want to do for a career and where I want to go in my life. But really, I think those books lent me, um, great inspiration, especially, uh, there are several that were penned by an author named Jack O'Connor and he was, is terribly inspiring to read his work. Yeah. Right. Mate. And was that the inspiration, for your study was that a natural progression from there for you and a, and a way to like you said live the live the life that you thought that you desperately wanted or you know you sort of you knew from a young age by the sounds of it that that was the path you wanted to go down yeah i i didn't know anything about wildlife biology i wasn't smart enough or um in tune enough with myself or the world around me, I was, I was probably in tune with myself enough, but I wasn't in tune with the world around me to actually even know what careers were available to me, um, to even think about what the future held for me. I just, once I got to a certain age of getting out of high school and starting to take some college classes, cause that's what I thought successful people did is you, you try to go to college and, and, uh, and move forward. And so once I started kind of looking at that, very quickly, I eliminated all the regular jobs, if you will. I just, it's not that I'm not going to do that. I'm, or can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I, I have no interest in nine to five, no interest in going to the office, no interest in, in kind of being a paid slave, if you will. It just wasn't for me. And so, um, a friend of mine, uh, we were having lunch one day and a friend of mine came and he said, Hey, check this out. And it was a brochure for the College of Natural Resources. And there's a moose on the cover. And he's like, I don't know what you're going to do, but you got to check this out. Um, there's a moose on the cover of this booklet. And if you're going to get a degree, like this has got to be the degree. And so I started looking into wildlife biology. And of course, I knew what wildlife biologists were, and but I didn't know what the job kind of held. And so once I started reading through it and thought, oh, I can take ichthyology classes and mammalogy classes and I can, you know, take different chemistries and physiologies. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is really cool. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that's, I just wanted to be around the animals still and I want to do adventure. Right. So even when I got out of school, I just wanted to get the coolest jobs in the far off places. Right. Cause I wanted to adventure. I didn't want to just study, you know, a lot of guys, they want to study white tail deer because they love deer. So they want to study white tail deer and just work at home. But I wanted to adventure. I wanted to, you know, get on little airplanes and get on big boats and, you know, see crocodiles and do all crazy stuff. You went and studied tigers in overseas uh, Nepal or something. Is that correct? 
Mm-hmm, Nepal and Bangladesh. How long was that for, mate? And how was that experience? I was just for a couple of months uh, in a single year, and the experience was um, absolutely wild. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. David Smith, and he's basically the most renowned tiger ecologist uh, in the world. Uh, he's, he's made it his entire life to study tigers and from Thailand and Nepal, Bangladesh, all over. And he invited me to go on a trip. Uh, we started out in Bangladesh and we ended in Nepal. In Bangladesh, we were studying in the Sunderbonds. It's the world's largest mangrove swamp. It was, I, I, I go back now and I wish I could go back to that place now. And now with all the experiences that I've had and kind of dive into it at a different time because I was such a punk kid at the time that I didn't really, you know, I, I tried to harness as much as I could, but to see that experience now and to think about that experience and being in the jungle and being in the Sunderbonds and the tigers and cobras, the crocodiles and sharks, and, you know, seeing all these different animals all the time. And, and, um, it was crazy. It was really crazy. It was really dangerous. There were a lot of pirates there. Uh, hmm. I had armed guards with me at all times and, and even they were a little bit sketchy, you know, there's just, you know, things were, uh, things were really interesting. And, uh, I swam in areas that I probably had no business swimming, um, (laughs) saw animals and I was around animals that I had really no business in being around. And then from there, uh, we traveled up to the Royal Chitwan national forest in, uh, Southern Nepal and, and, uh, and in there, I went to work on an elephant every day, Andy. So like yeah. <clears throat> early in the morning, I'd get up and literally an elephant with a rider would come and pick me up at my cabin. I'd get up on this, you know, big female elephant and we'd go work every day. Cause otherwise, you know, you risk, if you were just, if we were just going to walk around the jungle, we'd risk, you know, being taken by a tiger because mm. the grass is so tall and the jungle so thick and it has, you know, there's Indian rhinos there and, and, uh, there's, you know, there's just a lot of dangerous wildlife there. So we'd work on the elephants, which was, you know, absolutely insane. One time I was on this elephant and, um, and the, the drivers, they're, they're really careful with the elephants, but they also can be kind of harsh if the elephant's not doing what they want. They ride barefoot. And so they use their toes to basically kind of like touch behind her ear to tell her which way they want her to go. And then they have commands for her to you know, to kneel down so that we can get off and go to the bathroom or whatever. And, and, uh, one time I was on this elephant and, um, I saw this little cat, this little, you know, leopard looking, um, I don't know what species it was cause it happened so fast, but like a little civet cat, like a little, like, you know, cloud cat looking thing. And it went into this bush and I asked the driver, it's like, Hey, I'd really love to get a photograph of that. And he's like, okay. And so we go over to this bush and literally when I'm ready, to take the photo, the elephant goes down with his, her trunk and literally kind of gooses this cat in the butt and gets the cat to jump out of the bush so I can get a photo of it. Like the elephant yeah. <laughs> basically kind of knows what I'm, what I'm looking for here. And, and she does it. And then when I'm done taking the photo of the cat, uh, we want to move on. And, and, uh, I have a computer with, uh, tigers on it with wearing different radio collars so I can see where these cats are. We're doing different, um, study to kind of see how the tigers are using their habitat and um and the the elephant wouldn't walk the driver's trying to encourage the elephant to walk and and she wouldn't walk and he kind of taps her on the head with this little bamboo rod and 
you know, she looks back and she wouldn't walk. And long story short, you know, his, he's getting a little bit more aggressive with trying to get her to move. And I'm like, Hey, it's okay. Like she'll move when she's ready. Well, here I had dropped my pencil from my clipboard and I didn't know that I dropped my pencil and the driver didn't know that I dropped my pencil, but she knew that I had dropped my pencil. And so she was searching in these tall grasses with her trunk for my pencil. And then all of a sudden she comes up with her trunk with my pencil in it and hands me my pencil. And then as soon as I had my pencil, she started walking. So the reason she wouldn't go is because she knew I dropped my pencil. It's just incredible. But, um, so yeah, I went and did those things. They were crazy, uh, dangerous, exhilarating, thrilling. Uh, Dave is, it was amazing for him to invite me to do that. And, um, you know, a biologist dream, an opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity to go to those places. And, and when you're there, you don't realize that it's once in a lifetime. You're like, Oh, cool. I'm in Bangladesh. I'll be back someday. Mm. But the reality is, um, that place is not for tourists, excuse me. And it's not for anyone that isn't, uh, when you go to, when you go to places like Bangladesh and you go to places like where we went and studied, unless you know what you're doing, it's a one-way trip. Yeah. Wow. You're not coming out. Crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really crazy. Yeah. The pirates, the crocodiles, the people like it, you're not coming out. No way. Wow. You spent some time studying salmon in Alaska. Is that right? That's the real work that I did. Um, I studied rough grouse in Northern Minnesota for a very short time, helping a friend of mine uh, finish his PhD. I did the tiger work over two years and a couple of months. Um, But really the body of the work that I did was for the U S fish and wildlife service studying salmon. Like that was a real job. That was my paycheck. Um, That was, that was really forwarding myself as a biologist and actually contributing uh, to the science up in Alaska and to the fisheries. And so, yeah, for, uh, four or five years, four years, um, I would go up there every year and, and, uh, basically live in a tent for four to five months over the summer in a remote research camp and, uh, and study Pacific salmon for the U S fish and wildlife service. A common theme rolling out here, but yeah, travel and, uh, wildlife and just living out in that, in those bush areas, right? Yeah, that's what I want to do. I didn't want to do any laboratory work. I didn't want to be in town. You know, a lot of biologists, or I shouldn't say a lot, but some, you know, they want the desk job. They want to go home every night. They want to go to the grocery store. They want to do this stuff. That that was the last thing I wanted. I wanted to go, you know, when they interviewed me, <laughs> you know, it's funny. We worked so hard in school and I was waiting for questions to be asked to me about biology. You know, what do you know about fish? What do you know about systems? What do you know about, um, salmon in general? I was waiting for all these questions. I had prepared myself. They didn't have any questions about fish. They didn't have any questions about biology. They wanted to know if they could drop me off in nowhere. They wanted to know if I could drive a boat in difficult conditions. They wanted to know if I could sleep in a tent for months on end. They want to know if I was going to get homesick or scared. They wanted to know if they were going to have to send a helicopter in to rescue me because I shot myself in the leg or, you know, they wanted to know if I could make it. They wanted to know what, where my mind was, what was my mentality, where was my mental strength and my physical strength? Were they going to have to come get me? Was it going to be, were they going to have to abort mission? That's what they wanted to talk about in the interview. Yeah. Wow. 
And I was like, yeah, absolutely not. I'll be right. <laughs> Mate, was that solo? You were doing that or were there other people out there? <clears throat> it's other people out there. At times I was solo, but there, there generally would be four people. So it would be two, um, call it U.S. Fish and Wildlife Biologists, and then there would be two Ubik men um, that we, we would switch out uh, Eskimos from a local village. Uh, we The research that we were doing was on their uh, land. And so um, we did a, basically we did a co-project. And so part of the, part of the uh, engagement rules for the co-project is we would hire two men from the village to come up every two weeks and, and kind of help us with different aspects of the study, uh, which is a really rewarding aspect of the study. It was, I became dear friends with some of the, some of the Eskimo men there and, and, um, and it had its challenges as well. Um, I have some, horrible stories and I have some funny stories, but it had, it had certain challenges and, um, but it, it, you know, a lot of the time it was just two of us. And then, and then when, uh, the Eskimo guys were up and helping us with the project, there'd be four of us in camp. I heard you telling a crazy wolf story. You befriended a pack of wolves. I heard that story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it's happened before and, and, um, it's not totally unique to where I was, um, it had never happened where I were exactly where I was, but I'd, I'd heard about it happening to other biologists where um, wolves kind of move into their camp because they realize it's a really good place for fishing, right? Where mm. we're doing our research in a part of the river that just happened to be uh, shallow and clear and, and easily generally uh, until there's rains and, the, and big floods, which happens, but generally navigable. And, um, and we're able to actually look at the fish, work with the fish speciate the fish through the clear water so just so happens that where we're doing our research also happens to be really good fishing grounds for wolves and bears and um but i did um in messing around we had a uh, we heard a wolf pack one night and howling and i was howling to them and i would howl they would howl and then um the next night or maybe a few nights later i think it was the next night uh the howling happened again but it was half the distance or even closer. And, and, uh, I walked down to our campus on a, on an outside cut bank. So it was up on kind of a 15 or so foot cliff above the river and our camp was up there on the tundra. And I walked to the edge of, of the river because it sounded like the wolves might be down in this little alder flat, which was on the inside bend of the river. And uh, that's when I saw what I, what I guessed at the time. And it turned out to be, uh, a female wolf, she came out on the sandbar and she was just kind of like walking up and down fishing. And I howled at her, but I just did little, like, you know, I do a little like, oh, 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 you know, little community, not just ripping a howl, but I would just make little dog noises. And she just instantly, you know, she snapped and looked up on, and then she just sat down straight away, straight up looking right at me. And then she made a little noise and then I basically would just mimic her noise. And when I would mimic her noise, she would, you could see her. She was, you know, she, I'm anthropomorphizing this, but she'd be like, what? Like he just said what I said, you know, kind of thing. Mm. She was just, she looked flabbergasted. And then she lay down staring at me and I'd make another noise and kind of do these little like, <laughs> you know, kind of little noise. And, and um, yeah, it was just cool engaging with her. And then um, she went away and then, um, I went down there fishing and I took a photo of this, but I went down there fishing and I was fly fishing and it was always a little, 
I was never worried, but it was always a little nerve wracking because the alders, which the grizzly bears use, they're basically right up to my back. And there's, I never once, I saw one bear and that thing was, oh, it's one of the biggest bears I've ever seen in my life. But it looked like a Volkswagen Beetle walking by my tent. But um, every night I would go fly fishing. And every morning when I was down on the river, my tracks would be covered by grizzly bear tracks. But I never saw the bears, right? They were there, but I never saw them except for that one. Oh, he was a monster. Um, but um, but so when I was fly fishing down there, I was always just kind of aware that the alders were right behind me. And so anyway, I, you know, I say <clears throat> I think I said this on Rogan, but I say like I felt something watching me. But the truth is I was looking over my shoulder all the time. Mm. And so, you know, I kept looking over my shoulder. But then I looked, I was looking at this kind of menagerie of alders, which for your listeners is kind of like a bushy tree with trunks, you know, up to about this big or whatever. And they kind of grow out picture like a Medusa's hair and they have big green leaves and these little, almost like um, pine cones on them. And then, you know, when the fall comes, all the leaves fall down, but it ends up being this kind of like tangle of gray, gray limbs. And that's where the grizzly bears really like to sleep during the day. But I look back at the alders and then this little space, I can see her face and the wolf and she's only man she's probably 10 yards behind me eight yards behind me something like that she's real close and then you know so i saw her and i was like trying to get my camera out and i took a picture of her but then while i was fishing she would come in behind me and i could see her smelling me mm-hmm. and then if i turn around and make eye contact she'd snarl she'd lift her lips up like hey you know like i don't like that I don't like the eye contact. And, and I was like, okay. So I, you know, so I just kept fishing and I'd look back at her and, and she'd, you know, come and go and disappear. And, but she'd walk really close behind me. And then we just kept that engagement going over the next couple of nights. And, uh, and then I think it was a few days that uh, I can only assume was the alpha male came in and in the middle of the night howled right outside my tent. And just that whole engagement just uh, crescendoed into um, me seeing the wolves every day. It was a rare that I would go a day without seeing multiple members of the pack. And then some of the days they would be in and around the camp all day. And, um, and I'd see them fishing, I'd see them working and, and, uh, I'd see them when I would exercise and hike. And even sometimes I'm outside shooting my bow and they're, um, one time two of the younger ones were sitting there playing with a plastic bag that had blown out of camp that I had to go get. And I did, but a plastic bag was blown across the tundra and these wolves ran and grabbed it. And then one was running and the other one was chasing, trying to get the plastic bag from them. And I'm shooting my bow. And anyway, but it was, um, it was really cool to be around the wolves. Yeah, amazing experience. Like you said, again, spending all that time in the outdoors, just uh, having those encounters with like, like you said, wild animals and yeah, just amazing story. That, oh, yeah. I couldn't believe it when I heard that story. No, it was, it was perfect. And even the bear, um, I was working with this native guy. Uh, he's an awesome guy. Uh, Peter Gregory's his name. But he, uh, I was exhausted because we were working uh, such long days. And it was my first year. It was probably the second week. And the bugs are horrendous. You know, I'm peeing in a bottle at night. I'm not standing up to put my pants on every day. And I've only been here two weeks, maybe three weeks. No, I bet it was even, you know what? I scratched that. I bet it was even less than a week. And I was laying in my tent going, 
all the tough guy stuff that I said to my boss in the interview when he's like, Hey, are we gonna have to come pick you up? Are you gonna be able to handle it? And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I hunt fish all the time. I camp all the time. I'm sitting there in my first week. Let's just call it. And I'm like, I haven't stood up and put my pants on in six days. The mos- my, my mosquitoes have mosquitoes. And uh, I'm just thinking like, what am I doing here? Like what really, what am I doing here? Like, I'm not talking to any of my friends. I'm not seeing anyone outside of this young lady that I worked with and these two Yupik men, you know, like what? And so anyway, I work 18, 19, 20 hours a day and I had to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. I was running out of gas. And so I told Peter, I go, Hey, Peter, I'm going to go lay down, wake me up in one hour. And he said, okay. And then I said, wait, if you see anything cool, come wake me up. And he said, what's cool? What you mean? <laughs> and I said, anything cool, just anything where you're thinking that's cool. Come wake me up. And he's like, okay. So I lay down and I closed my eyes for five minutes. It seemed like, and all of a sudden he's like, Hey, Donnie. I said, yeah, Peter, he goes, there's a huge bear here. I go, there's not a huge bear. He goes, he's, Maybe the biggest bear I've ever seen here, right here. And I'm thinking, he's at, he's got to be absolutely full of it. So I go, okay. And uh, I unzip my tent. I poke my head out of the tent. And walking right past my tent is to this day one of the largest brown bears I've ever seen in my life. And it was on a day. It was up against the Killbuck Mountains, which is a very pretty mountain range in Alaska. I'm looking across, let's just call it whatever, 30 miles of tundra in the Killbuck Mountains. And here is this brown bear. It was like an oil painting, Andy, walking past me in the tundra and the wind's blowing and I can see his grizzled fur is just blowing in the wind. And, you know, uh, to put it in a hunter's perspective, this is a boar brown bear of massive proportions like this is a record book mature i don't know how many feet it was but you know nine plus foot brown bear walking past my tent and the you know head head on him like this and the wind is blowing it just and peter and i just sat there and watched him walk right on by and i looked at peter and i was like that this is like that i i felt like somebody had lifted a car off me like I'm where I need to be. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Mm. This is Shangri-La. My life has just been changed. Um, wake me up if you ever see anything cool again. I'm ready to go. Like it was all the fuel in my tank. Like I'm okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And um, and uh, yeah, Peter's just like okay. And you know, we went on, but it was incredible. It was incredible. It really was. Yeah, having those encounters, like, yeah, I can only imagine, you know, we don't have bears in Australia, but uh, I've had some close encounters with some huge whales and stuff like that while I've been out diving and, like, being in the water with them and it's just breathtaking, really, isn't it? Like you just, like you said, you're pretty much just this tiny little speck and they could probably crush you at any second, but you just sort of hold your, almost hold your breath and just try and take it all in. Yeah. I can't imagine being under the water and seeing a huge whale or a huge shark um mm. up close i just i've never done it and i just i i want to do it so bad i just think it would be so cool mm. man that's a crazy story yeah wow it didn't it didn't 
it wasn't phased by you guys like it was what was it doing just walking past like looking for food through the camp you reckon or yeah probably moving this is just a guess but probably moving because i never saw that bear again um probably moving from one territory to another right probably like the salmon hadn't come back yet the salmon weren't in the river yet you know we were there this was early we were waiting you know we would get there and set our camp up and get everything totally ready and then we wait on the fish which is another (laughs) anyone that's not experienced it like you're looking in this river the water's crystal clear there are dolly varden which is like a little trout and there are grayling which is again like a little trout but a totally unique looking fish and the system's just quiet. There's no real seagulls, no no herring gulls, no bald eagles, really. I mean, you're seeing them a little bit, but no bears, no wolves. Just this meandering river. You hear the ripples. You hear the current. You know, occasionally the, the tail slap of a beaver. Um, and then all of a sudden, one day, you'll hear, and you go to the river, and here comes the first salmon going up the ripple, and then another, and then another. And as it it's it's as though a tidal wave of life is coming up the river. All of a sudden, there are no fish other than a resident species, and then the next hour there are fish. And when there are fish, there are eagles and wolves and bears. The whole system wow. comes to life. There might as well be blood traveling down an artery, and everything is coming to life. As as um, it almost feels like. Have you ever seen that cartoon um, Moana? Yeah, you ever seen that? Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. At the end, um, at the end, when you see all the, you know, how everything's dying over the time because, you know, whatever the the folklore, and then at the end when they replace the the stone or whatever, all that life kind of comes to. That's that's what it's like, and and so I can only imagine when I saw that large brown bear that there's no fish in the system yet, and he must have had an area that he liked to fish, or he must have been um, looking. For the fish, right? He was probably up in the mountains. That's where I would imagine a bear like this would most likely live. And then he might have literally just been impatient and walking downstream saying, okay, I'm either going to go find a moose calf or I'm going to walk until I hear fish in the river and then I'm going to start fishing. Like something along that if, if, if I'm if I'm making a guess. But yeah, he walked past us. Um, you know, we were oogling at him and Peter and I were talking. He was probably only 30 yards away. Uh, he never even looked at us. Didn't wow. even look up. Just, you know, they walk like uh, the big ones. They walk kind of like a tractor trailer. It's it's like their belly button is a pivot point because they're too fat to just bring their legs forward like a small bear would. So they have to, the front legs got to go around and then they have to bring this big sausage from the back around. And they kind of walk like this tractor trailer, if you will, like a semi. And they just kind of wow. articulate in the middle because they're so big. It's they're like a big fat, like they're like your dad or your uncle. <laughs> Man, mm-hmm. amazing, amazing to see. Yeah, wow. Tony, mate, yeah, so I know you've spent time and you love spending a lot of time up in the Arctic Circle, you know, going bow hunting and, and, and stuff like that. Like, what is it about that place that resonates with you, mate? And do you go solo there? Uh, yeah, like talk to us a little bit about your experience in that Arctic circle? Um, one thing that I've kind of, I've thought about this myself, like what about that really speaks to me, excuse me. And the number one thing is uh, there's no trees. I think that's my favorite. 
there's no trees other than some small scrub brushes here and there along lakes. Um, but it's as, it's, it's as wide open as you can imagine. So the animals can't hide there. Um, caribou, bears, wolves, obviously animals can hide there, but you, you get my drift. When you look around, you get to see the whole landscape. It's not like being in Australia where you're looking at the bush, looking for buffalo or looking for pigs or looking for deer. You're not looking at the bush going, I have no idea where the buffalo are today. I've literally, if they're not out on the floodplain, I have no idea where they are. We have to go in the bush and actually like walk around until we see spore or track. It, it's just like that. You're not sitting here in the in the northeast United States or or wherever where you're sitting there looking at these big hardwoods or these big pine forests in your glass and going, I don't know where the elk are. I don't know where the moose are. There, there's no trees. And so I literally climb up as high as I can as a mountain and I sit down. I dig out a little spot for my butt, put down my little pad, sit on my pad so my butt doesn't get cold because everything's permafrost up there. And literally just start picking the landscape apart. And I'm like, you know, there's a falcon. Oh, there's a pack of wolves. Oh, here's a grizzly bear. Look, there's a grizzly bear a mile away and he's walking up the valley. And I can, I'm watching through my spotting scope, right? He's, oh, he's eating berries. Oh, now he's digging for squirrels. Like it's National Geographic right in front of me. And I get to watch it all. And then when I happen to see caribou, because that's what I'm hunting is caribou. When I happen to see caribou, I'm looking at them and say, okay, there's a really big mature bull there. The, all the other herds, okay, they went down along that river and they went up through that split. Okay, put my backpack on. I'm hiking to that split, keeping the wind right, hiding from the caribou, sneaking to that split. And it's almost like that, you know, the Native Americans used to build, and if I'm mistaken of this, I apologize, but um, used to build like little rock huts a little rock wall that they would then sit behind to hunt. Like they would see the traditional patterns of caribou and they'd build these little rock huts and different things to hide behind. So they get close to the herd because they knew that the herd was going to do this next year. Well, it's kind of almost like that. Like I'd slip in and find like one little bush or a little alder or get into a little creek bed where I'm, you know, I'm down into the actual stream and I've got my bow and I can see their antlers, right? I can see their antlers just walking down. I can see their tops, and uh, and then just sitting there and watching one bull, two bulls, you know, and and then here comes the big old bull, you know, with this white mane, and and then just you know that moment as an archer, I'm sure you feel this as a spear fisherman. You come to full draw. I used to panic in this moment, like when I used to come to full draw. I used to be like, oh my god, it's going to happen, and a lot of emotion and a big wow, this big explosion. But now you know you come to full draw and you just see kind of like the history of man in a flash like all these images popping into your brain you are entering into this realm of predator and prey you're entering into this uh, native human being in in the world i don't care the color of your skin i don't care your tribe's name i don't care if you're a mutt from europe or you're or you're born on this land you kind of enter this this realm of man supplying his own food and doing it in the wildest of a place Mm. and having that calm of having your bow at full draw and, and seeing your sight picture of your broadhead on that animal's shoulder and everything's quiet and you hear the wind and just pop. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the most incredible place in the world. But I think that's really, when I think about it, the night sky 
is bigger than I've ever seen. The northern lights, the the falcons, the grizzly bears, the ground squirrels, the blueberries, the the, the fish that return there. Uh, it's just I think the fact that there's no trees or very few trees, it just opens up the whole landscape to come to life to to your eyes, and and I think that's really and I, it's also there aren't a lot of people there because it's a long way to go and it's kind of a scary place to go and it's cold. And, um, and I like that. I like that kind of, I like that you have to suffer to go there. Mm-hmm. And I like that you have to risk your life to go there. It's like a f- bit of a final frontier sort of a place, right? Yeah. hundred <clears throat> percent. But I've heard you talk about being in a place like that. It forces you to be present, like truly present in that moment and taking all those little which is sort of food for your soul, like we've been talking about. You've obviously got a lot of food for your soul, the way, you know, the way that you've lived your life and, and the experiences that you've had though. But yeah, you want to talk a little bit about being super present in the moment and the enrichment that that delivers to you as opposed to, you know, living, like you said, your nine to five. I don't really think that's living to be honest, but yeah, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. The more comfortable we become, um, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Michael Easter, um, the guy that wrote the comfort crisis, but that that would be a good interview for you. And he's an amazing man. Um, but the, the more things that we do that are comfortable and the more things that are just this monotonous nine to five, or even just anything in our lives, uh, whether it's, uh, pouring a bowl of cereal or changing the oil on your truck or anything, that's just, you're just doing it because it needs to be done and you're moving through it. Uh, these are the things that are just stealing time from us. And um, it's not that changing your oil is stealing your time, but how you change your oil is stealing your time and where your mind is when you're doing some of these things, it's really what's stealing your time. And the, the, the element of the wilderness that makes you become a little bit more present is everything takes real thought and everything takes, you know, whether it be getting water or finding a little bit of firewood or, you know, nothing happens without it being a chore. And so in some regards, um, you become more present because there's more work to be done, more real work to be done. If you don't go get water, you're not going to have water. And so literally, if you have to drop a thousand feet down to a river and go get water, well, you know, you drop a thousand feet. So you're burning these calories to go down to the water. You're not hunting today or you're not hunting this morning or this evening because you have to go get water. And so you go down there and then as you're approaching the water, you can hear the water, which is taking away your 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 um, sense of hearing. And so, and as you get near the water, you start seeing more bear tracks, and you have to slip through the alders to get to the edge of water, which is where the bears also travel. And so, you kind of have this hyper focus, and you're just getting water. It's as simple as you. All you have to do is go over and turn your faucet on when you're at home. But here, it's taking all of these senses to kind of go get water, and it's this hyper focus. And then I trick myself. Because I have to do it too. I'm, I'm like everyone else or all of a sudden at the end of the – many, many times in my life, my day starts with an alarm clock and it ends with me chasing my tail the entire day. It's not mm-hmm. that I get to watch beluga whales fish for salmon every single day, but I have to harness those moments when it happens. So I don't want anyone to have the delusion that everything I do in my life is wild and that everything I do in my life is – is of, of movie quality. It's not, I, I have the same bad days. I have the same days where I run like a madman all day. And I sit down at the end of the day and I say, I was super busy all day today. And I accomplished 
not a single damn thing. Mm. Like literally I accomplished nothing other than running myself into a circle and into a frazzle. And so when I'm in a place like the Arctic and I'm going to get water and, and, um, one time I took a photography class in college and, um, and I just so happened to work in a hospital, uh, when I was in this photography class. So for a couple of the assignments, I would go into surgery and I'd photograph, uh, patients having surgery, um, for some of my projects. And, and, um, one time I was showing, uh, my professor, these photos of, um, this guy was bleeding out. He lived, but this guy was bleeding profusely from a ruptured artery and you can see the blood spraying out. And, and, um, and I took a series of photos from like the whole patient where you can see blood, like running off of his leg and dripping onto the floor. Then I took another one where you can see the blood actually, like I caught like a spurt coming out of the Mm. artery. And then I took another one that was a pool of blood on an apron, on a gown, on the floor. And you could see where it was starting to clot. And I took, you could just see the texture of the clot. It almost looked like um, pudding, if you will. And it's kind of what a blood, a big blood clot looks like. It looks like this congealed pudding. And, um, and he looked at that photograph and he's like, oh, that's cool. And I thought he was going to like the photograph of the whole scene. Or I thought he was going to like the photograph of the blood spurting out of the artery. And I said, why'd you comment on that one? And he said, oh, it's more interesting than the other two. Um, I said, is it? And he said, yeah, the, the closer you become to something, the more interesting it becomes to you. And so even, so I've taken that to heart. So even when you're looking at a leaf, if I hand you a leaf and say, Andy, check this out. And you look at it and you go, oh yeah, okay, cool. And you just discard it. And, and okay. But if I handed you a leaf and I said, Andy, you have to spend your entire day with this leaf. I want you to sketch it. I want you to feel it. I want you to write a paragraph describing how it feels, how it smells, how it, you know, every, every, what does the edge look like? What, what do you think? What kind of tree do you think it came from? And you, and you were going to dictate and you were going to do all it. You would have such, you would have a far more intimate experience with that leaf. And that leaf would be so much more present in your mind and leave a much different impression on you than if you just checked out and said, Oh yeah, cool. So when I go get water, it's kind of like that aspect, or I know if I'm going to the Arctic, this is really what it is. If I go to the Arctic for 14 days or 20 days or whatever, I know that this, the moment I step off that, that big jet at the airport and I collect my bags and I go over to the hangar and I start re reorganizing my gear to put it into the super cup to go out. I know that the clock has just started. That's what it is. It just started. And so I know that I'm here for 14 days or 20 days or 10 days, whatever it is. And so I have those seconds of this trip to harness all I can. And, mm. and when I'm getting in a, a bush plane, I look at the wings and I look at the struts and I look at the wheel and the pilot and I look at his hands. I see the cuts and I look at the paint chips falling off the dash of the airplane. And I try to just get as close to everything as I can, because I know it's going to force me to be mindful and present rather than if I just get in a plane and somebody says, Hey, what was the plane like that you uh, flew? in?" And I go, yeah, it was red and white. I think, I think it was red and white. 
no, I, you know, I want to know much more about it. And, and, um, in fact, I drove yesterday when I was in Alaska, I drove past an airplane that I've flown in a couple of times for, for different bear hunts and a goat hunt. And, um, I was just traveling yesterday, but I drove past that plane and I actually pulled over on the side of the road and took my binos out and I glassed this plane. It was in Homer, Alaska. It was a dark green and mint green, uh, de Havilland beaver. I just looked at that plane and I just thought to myself, you know, one day, many, many years ago, I was getting my gear stowed in that airplane mm-hmm. to be flown out. And, uh, I was just looking at that plane and then in that pilot one time, um, I was with two buddies of mine, Frank Harris and Ken Gates. We were hunting black bears and, and mountain goats. They're both biologists. They were my bosses. And so I'm looking at this airplane yesterday and I remember the three of us hunting together in that airplane. And then one time we were in camp and all of a sudden we heard an airplane, which once you're in the wilderness, hearing an airplane again, kind of like spurs, like triggers you to be awake because very often you don't even hear airplanes where we go unless the guy is coming back to pick you up. So I hear an airplane and we're eating dinner and I looked over at Frank and I said, that's a beaver. Cause you can hear it kind of sounds like an old muscle car. Like it's a really deep engine. I go, is that a beaver? And he's like mid mouth. He's like, yeah, that is a beaver. We looked over at gates and we're at gates. Is that a beaver? Like for sure. And then we see this plane. And I said, it's a green beaver. And I looked, I go, we flew in on a green beaver. And they're both like, yeah, that plane was green. And all of a sudden it lands and then taxis up to our camp. You know, we're eating dinner. And we're like, you know, this guy's not supposed to pick us up for like eight days. And he rolls into camp and he hops out on the floor. He's like, hey, guys. We're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, pack your stuff up. He's like, we got to go. He's like, a typhoon is hitting here in a couple of days. And he's like, I got to get you guys off this island. Like, you can't be here. It's like a storm came out of nowhere. He's like, we got to go. Like, pack your stuff up right now. And we're, you know, we're... <laughs> all of our stuff in the back but anyway i stopped on when i flew in that airplane before i wasn't present i didn't even know we flew it on a green beaver like i did but i had to like jog my memory like hey was our beaver green that we flew in on and you know and when we saw this plane coming in but but yesterday when i when i glassed that beaver from the from the road I was like, I, all that stuff came flooding back. And so now I want to steal those images as much as possible so that when I see that beaver again or whatever it is that I see again or whatever it is that I experienced for the first time, I want to steal. I know the clock on my life is ticking. So I want to steal as many of those images as I can because I know that these experiences that I'm having, that's really what my life is. That's really what my life is going to consist of at the end, whether it be cut short or I die as an old man. Uh, that's what, that's what I'm, that's what I'm here to harvest. If you will, that's what I want to take with me right now. And and when you leave though, like if you do, if you, you know, if you spend that time, I think it's a great analogy what you're saying there. And if you, if you spend that time when you're out there, you know, taking those little snapshots and being present, because it's going to be over really quickly. Right. And they're the things you're going to remember when you come back, you've got so many more memories and, and so much more, like you said, such a deeper thought process of being out there. It's a lot more enriching when you're coming back and you remember that trip, like you said, for all those little things and yeah, far more in-depth sort of uh, memories of, of each trip, I imagine. 
Yeah, that and that's you know it's funny is when I see somebody with a large animal, big moose or big bear, huge fish or you know, that's why it's not that I'm a trophy hunter. It's not. I, I think uh, I think there are plenty of people that are. I, I know lots of people that are absolutely consumed with inches of antler or feet of a bear or a skull, whatever. It's ridiculous to me. But if you if you if I meet you at the docks, let's say I'm in Australia, let's say I don't know who you are. And I'm there traveling with my mate, Nick Joyce, and we just happen to be down on these docks. And you come in with your buddies from a spearfishing trip and you're unloading your catch on the dock. And I come over and I see, you know, you have a huge whatever it is that you just shot. Let's say I see several species and then you have this massive tuna that you shot or whatever it is. I just automatically think, what happened with that one? Like (laughs) what? I just assume like maybe you were more present on that one or what? It's the same reason we cast a lure to the unknown of catching a huge fish or um, I think what people don't realize when they see guys chasing big caribou or big moose or big bears, they think that it's this ego thing. And I think for a lot of people it is, but really for me, it's this opportunity of the rarest is to see an animal that is very rare to see, very difficult to see, very, um, kind of forces you to get closer kind of forces you to take in all these details it hyper it, it you know it your heart starts beating out of your chest your your vision is that much more acute because this is such a rare instance and so that's where these grandiose stories come from and that's where that grandiose feeling comes from but um i think that has translated from our forefathers and our grandfathers of having this unique experience of killing a massive moose which lent to a lot of meat because every moose with a huge rack has a more meat on it than a moose with a little rack so i think that's where a lot of this stuff kind of and then we also you know you come from um as far as north america you come from guys like uh president theodore roosevelt who started these gamekeeping traditions because they wanted to know hey where are the biggest moose being grown, not so that trophy hunters could go to these areas and harvest a big one, which is what it's become. No, he wanted to know where are these animals doing well? Where do they need help? Where can we lend our conservation efforts to change? And then, so, you know, they started looking at all these things and looking at different record book heads and different weights of animals. And so, um, that's, that, that's what just drives me is when I see something exceptional, whether I did it or you did it, I want to talk about it and, I want to know what you saw, even the instance that we spoke of before we started recording with you and the, the, what you had to do in your job recently. Uh, it's kind of the same thing, like hyper-focused. Um, every second mattered. Every second was a, another photograph in your mind that you have all the details to. And then another second, you went to the next photograph. What happened? Well, his arm moved here. That totally changed. Well, what happened in the next photo? That's what I want to know. I want to know what you saw. I want to know what your mind was thinking. I want to, it's just absolutely fascinating to me. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's crazy. I was, um, <clears throat> I was talking to a couple of guys, like uh, ex high military sort of guys, and that, and exactly what you're saying, like those snapshots and um, 
the way that your brain will distort time, et cetera, to be able to fit, to take those big snapshots and the way it puts it all together in the aftermath of where it, how it's trying to categorize it and stuff like that can play some pretty crazy, yeah. Uh, yeah. good or bad, depending on the incident. But even, like you said, if yeah. you've been out and, and having all these, these experiences, your mind's just full of – it's just full, isn't it? Like you said, you go out for a, a crazy hunt or an amazing 14 days or whatever it is, trip, you, you, your mind's so full – like you, you never sleep better. I just find that, yeah, it's, it's, that's what keeps bringing me back to the outdoors in general. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, mate. Also, so you know, you've spent a lot of time outdoors and that, but there is that hunting aspect to it. That was one I wanted to sort of move into now. Like being a hunter, uh, you touched on it with you know our ancestors and stuff like that. Uh, it is in our history, and I know I've heard you talk about it before, and a lot of people, but. You know, hunters may be sort of almost frowned upon these days and stuff like that, but everyone who's here comes from the generation of hunters, right? So I find it a little strange that I guess it's out of fashion now or whatever because you can go to the store and just buy your own meat and have no connection with it. Most people, like you said, wouldn't even care or consider where what they're eating, where it's come from, how it's died, etc. Can we talk about what draws you to be a hunter and those, the opportunity to provide your own meat and share it with others, et cetera, like that, and what that means to you. Yeah, and um, yeah, it means it means everything to me. It used to when I started hunting; it meant very little to me. I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't think about. I wasn't mindful enough to to actually break the whole process down in my mind. To me, when I was growing up, um, which is really funny because in the beginning. When I read about these authors' uh, experiences, Jack O'Connor, and I saw the photographs and I'd see the artwork in these books, whether it be a painting or an actual photograph, um, and I'd read the words next to the photograph, it was very eloquently written out. And it was very perfectly written out in the sense of if you held the correct mindset, you could appreciate this written word. And you could understand why this man was adventuring to where he was and why he was seeking uh, the types of animals that he was and, and then um, and, and where that uh, – how they were describing the meat back at camp and how they cooked it and, and kind of the rewards um, that they're all enjoying the spoils of their hunt under the, uh, uh, under the stars and by a campfire. And so I'd read these words and really I just got lost. The adventure – because I was a boy, the adventure, I got lost in the adventure. I got lost in the guns, the, the travel, the airplanes, all of the, all the kind of danger and flashy part of it. But I lost the sense of what they were really doing there was to fill their life with, with adventure, much like I'm doing now. And then also um, to have that experience of sharing meat that you now have collected off the mountainside with the men that you have collected it with. And, uh, and having those stories and sharing those moments. And so once I started realizing, um, you know, I used to squirrel hunt with my dad occasionally and, and I absolutely loved it. And, um, and we'd go out and we'd hunt squirrels and, and, you know, we'd shoot two squirrels or three squirrels or four squirrels. And people kind of balk at that now, I think, uh, very often, unless you're have hunted squirrels or a squirrel hunter, you kind of balk at that, like these little, Mm-hmm. Things you see in a city park, you know, like who would hunt those and, and, uh, like, 
uh, <laughs> I would hunt those and they're amazing to hunt and they're difficult to hunt and they're, they require marksmanship and they require, um, you to be present in the woods and they require you to move with thought and they are, require you to be very stealthy and to sit still and have patience. And, and then, you know, we'd shoot these squirrels and then I remember, um, my dad hated skinning them because squirrels are, they're tricky to skin. Their skin is really, really tight to their musculature. So they're tricky to skin. And so, um, I, I always told him like, Hey, I'll skin them because if I did more of the work, my dad, I would, this is my thought process was that my dad would take me more. Hmm. So I, I said, I'll skin them. And I skin these squirrels and I get, I'd hold their flesh. And with squirrels, you basically get down to where you have two front legs, two back legs, and then, you know, their whole body, I, I guess. It doesn't matter how big the animal is. And so I cut them in half, let's say at their belly button, and then I cut them in a quarter. And so you'd have these basically two hind legs, two front legs with a piece of the back. And then um, we'd fry them in butter and we'd eat them like chicken wings essentially in their <laughs> They're so good. It's stupid. <laughs> um, but that was the beginning. And that's when I didn't realize what I was doing, but um, still went through the whole process. And then I started realizing how much when I would kill a deer or like kill a bear, I started realizing what skinning it meant to me and then holding its flesh. And then, and then I started realizing that this animal was a thing. And that's what really started to connect me to my meat is when I realized that if I don't pull the trigger or release the arrow, this deer gets to keep being a deer or this bear gets to keep being a bear. Cause I passed plenty of animals where I just wasn't in the mindset. And when I watch them walk off, it's just like, yeah, he gets to keep being a bear for, you know, essentially the rest of his life, whether he gets taken by another hunter, killed by another bear, falls off a cliff, whatever, it, wherever his journey's taking him, I didn't end it today. Mm-hmm. And so then I had this, when I do release an arrow or, or shoot a bullet, having this appreciation of once the animal dies, then taking it from stem to stern, the pleasure of skinning it, yep. taking its meat, and then breaking that down. And then basically being ultra present in that experience to the point of when I'm in the kitchen and I'm pulling it out of the freezer or I'm cooking it fresh on the side of the mountain, like it's, it is a cornucopia of events that – I have belonged to from hiking into that area or sneaking around in the little woodlot with my 22 for squirrels. It's that investment into what it is. And it's just earning your calories, just like, just like you would in a, in a gym or running or um, anything in life. The, the, the harder, the harder it is, the more you're investing, the more rewarding you get from it, the more you actually lived to experience this moment, this day, this time. And you don't even think about it. I don't even think about it when I'm in the grocery store and like I'm out, you know, let's say I get caught. Um, I'm eating a moose right now. That's really what I'm eating. I have some Canada geese. I have some, a couple of wild turkeys left from last year. And then um, I have a lot of moose meat. So that's what I'm eating right now. But if I get caught you know, like today I don't have anything thought out cause I just got home from Alaska and I'll thaw some stuff out. But if I didn't, and I was just going to go to the store or I'm at a restaurant with people or whatever, I don't even, I don't even really give my food any thought at all. I don't even, you know, I, I, I try now 
to go to the right places, do the right things, appreciate my moments. But really, unless unless I've invested myself into it, it's very difficult to be to kind of have that that ownership. And and um, I think with hunters today, and I hate to say it because I don't want to cause any negative connotations or thoughts, but some of the hunters today that I see, Andy, just kind of um, are hunting for different reasons and chasing different accolades. And there are so many shortcuts these days. Now, there are very little shortcuts. And at one time, if I'm being honest, at one time, many, many people considered the airplane to be a shortcut. And so mm-hmm. I'm unbelievably guilty of using airplanes. But in the in the beginning, you know, airplanes and pilots, these very gifted bush pilots opened up the backcountry to people like me that weren't going to ride a horse back there. I, you know, I would have, but I just hadn't yet. Airplanes were already greatly in use by the time I was an adult. And so I followed suit and used airplanes. If airplanes weren't being used, you know, I would have ridden horses or taken boats or whatever it is that need to be. But, you know, at one point, airplanes were considered a, a big, uh, a big hack, if you will, to, to access the backcountry. But now with, you know, game cameras and with all these it's just different mm-hmm. things that really open up um, technologies of, of being successful. I just think that uh, the woodsmanship has fallen, which really greatly impacts hunters and greatly impacts um, the, the opinion of hunting. The marksmanship has fallen, which again, I think greatly impacts the hunter and greatly impacts the view of the hunter. Mm-hmm. I think when, when hunters were looked at more favorably in society is because the skill set was heavy and it was, um, it was earned. And, uh, and I think when, when young men and women or, or even, uh, men and women that didn't hunt, when they saw a hunter, there was no debate of the ethics because everyone ate meat and everyone had to procure their meat in this particular manner. And, hunters were very often regarded as the most prominent men in society because they had skill sets that would protect the home. They had skill sets that would provide for the home and provide for the tribe. And, um, I think that's where we've, where we've slipped is that it's, there's been some measure of, of ego involved in, in the weight of animals or the size of the antlers. And there's been a lot of, um, technology to offer shortcuts or comforts along the way. And I just think, um, with our skill sets slipping or lacking and, um, and our provisions also falling by the wayside where the society assumes that they don't really need the hunter anymore in the tribe, um, because the grocery store is there, uh, through factory farming, through, uh, factory ranching, whatever it may be. Um, I just think that's where, um, the kind of the supply and demand has, has went away, if you will. But I think if hunters hunted, what I describe as well and good with the highest of ethics, the least amount of, of technology and access, um, and, and just kind of get back to learning their craft, whether it be woodsman, marksmanship, um, not tying where to set up a tent, how to start a fire, how to butcher an animal, um, you know, Mm. how to get a hypothermia, where, where to hide in the desert. If you're overheating, like all of these elements of survival, um, I think if hunters started leaning into that more and and um, and then leaning into conservation a bit more as well, I think uh, I think the opinion of hunting and hunt- hunters would would come around. But as you well know, you and I both know that we're, you know, we're we're instead of talking about such elements, we're talking about things like chat GPT and 
and um, <laughs> and other different technological advancements and electrical cars and and uh, you know it seems seems we're stemming the other direction. But you under I think you understand what where my opinion yeah. lies. It's funny, you know, talking to having the podcast and talking to like minded people. It's this very similar theme, you know. None of them wanted to or could think of anything worse, I guess, than sitting in inside or an office type job or that technical tech, technology and all those things. They're not high on the priority list for the people that seem to be in this. Of course, you have to live your life. There is levels of technology these days, etc. But yeah, it's not high on the priority list amongst the people that uh, share these common traits. Yeah, yeah, and I I think about this stuff um, like what people, and we're all different, but I think about what people spend their money on, and I think, you know, you'll see things on let's just say Instagram, Facebook, whatever. You'll see things where, you know, somebody will take a picture of a huge mansion with Lamborghinis out front, girls on a yacht, and you know, and you'll I read these titles like, oh, I'm going to be rich, or you know, this is what successful people this is what my life's going to look like in a couple of years or whatever. I see these things kind of like mm. bidding towards success. Like, do you want to drive this car or this car? You can drive this car. If you do these 10 things, you know, if you do do these 10 changes in your life. You'll be driving a car like this. And I just think to myself, like, no Another freaking die. way, man. Another die. <laughs> like, absolutely. You can have the mansion. You can have the yacht. You can have the girls. You can have the, the Lambo. Like, no, thanks, man. Like I'm, no, I'm trying to go to far off places and and do different things. Like, no, do wild shit. I like it, man. Yeah, Tony. One of the topics, obviously, I wanted to chat with you about was was bears and bear hunting in general. Uh, yeah. In Australia, you know, we don't have bears out here, so I guess there's a level of or lack of understanding. I've heard people say before, "Why would you want to hunt a bear?" You know, I guess people see a bear in a zoo or sitting there quite placid, you know, it's just sitting in a, a caged-off area, getting food thrown to it. So I, I guess people develop a, a way of thinking that, you know, they're quite a cuddly, soft, nice sort of an animal. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the ethics around bear hunting and reasons for herd management, etc., and the level of impact that these bears have, the amount of numbers they are over there and – the way they're managed and the level of impact that they can have on like caribou species, you know, uh, and how decimating they can be if they're not managed. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there and I'll just skim over it so that we can have a conversation. Then if you want to dive into anything, um, it's very easy to understand why people don't want you to hunt bears or think that bear hunting is, is kind of wrong. And, and i um, you know, if you spend any time at all watching bears, you know, if you and I go on a black bear hunt or a brown bear hunt and you see a bear that you're going to uh, hunt and, and kill, you know, we go into the stock and, and you're kind of watching these bears and you go into the stock and kill this animal. You know, that's one type of bear hunt. Uh, kind of another element of a bear hunt is where you see a bear in a in a location that is not in a good stocking location and you end up having to watch them for a while before you do a stock. And sometimes, you know, you kind of understand what people, um, where their heart kind of falls. And let's say you and I are on this, a very similar hunt. We see a large black bear that we're going to hunt stock, but we're forced to watch it for a few hours. 
you know, watching the antics of these animals, they're, they're, they're so human, like sometimes in their movements and their, and their, um, comedic kind of little instances, how they roll over things, how they'll trip and fall. Um, you know, I was, I hunted this brown bear one time, this very, very large brown bear. I didn't, I didn't kill him. Um, but he was massive and I was stalking him with my bow. And while I was stalking him, I got up on this knob and I was glassing him and I, I saw him in these alder bushes. And then while I was watching him, he literally laid down in kind of a, um, whirlpool, if you will. And he was kind of laying on his back in this mud puddle and he was just laying there and you could see his big belly and he was just laying there. And then he wanted to chew on his toes. He wanted to chew on his toenails, but he was too fat. So he kept bringing his foot up (laughs) and he was trying to, he'd like try to get his foot and he'd go like this, but he couldn't get it. And then you see, he'd take a couple of breaths and then he'd give it a go again. And, and so, you know, I was watching it with a buddy of mine and we were chuckling to ourselves because it's, it quite honestly, like watching your fat uncle take a bath, right? It's just like, who is this guy? And so you kind of see these elements of why people see bears and, and uh, think, well, why in the world would you want to hunt that animal? But truth be told, in a lot of instances, bears do very, very well to be hunted. And in instances where we don't hunt them because of uh, the attractiveness to people, that's more often than not. It's very rarely that we're not hunting bears because they don't have the population to be hunted. It's far more often that we are not hunting bears because people don't want us to hunt them because they're trying to lean on tourist dollars. Um, You'll have resorts that don't want people hunting bears because the more bears that are running around the woods, the more bus trips that they can drive you down some paved road and say, there's a bear and there's a bear. And, and it's, it's ridiculous that you think that that is more beneficial to a bear than killing a bear. Um, because bears very quickly will eat themselves out of house and home. Bears need massive territories to hunt and fish and to forage and large boars only tolerate, um, you know, a certain level of stress in their lives, whether that be from other cubs, other females, other young boars. And, you know, there's a lot of competition for food. And, and, uh, and so bears, where they do well to be hunted, where there is a stable population, a growing population, um, they do very, very well to be hunted and their flesh, which is such a misunderstanding is a lot of people will shoot a bear. And even there are a lot of laws, which I wish they would change these. I I quite honestly do. There are a lot of laws that say you can kill a bear and take its hide and take its skull, but you don't have to take its meat for certain species. Like grizzly mm-hmm. bears are generally noted for not being very good to eat. Uh, same with brown bears. And then some people have that notion about black bears as well. They say, well, if a bear has been eating berries it's good to eat, but it's been eating fish. They're terrible. They have worms. They're, uh, and, um, and I've been in camps before where I've hunted bears and I've told, like, I've killed a very large, very old black bear. And when we skinned him out, his fat was kind of yellowy. There were worms, you know, there were things going on. He had tapeworms and stuff. And, the two gentlemen I were with that were 
skinning the bear with me. They're like, see, see, we're not eating this thing. And I said, we are eating this thing that we a hundred percent are eating this bear. And they're no, no, no. So we kind of, I said, just hear me out. We butcher the whole bear. We get the whole bear back to camp and I clean the bear up. They want nothing to do with it. And where I am legally, I don't have to take the bear meat just, just to be crystal clear. All I have to take is the hide and the skull. This is an area that is very high bear population. The carcass, even if I leave the carcass in the woods, it's not going to go unutilized. Ravens are going to eat it. Eagles are going to eat it. Other bears are going to eat it. The mother nature is going to come to this carcass and it is going to be a life source for many, many animals um, until it is, until it's reclaimed by mother nature. Um, But as it were, I'm being a little bit greedy and I'm taking the flesh with me because I love black bear meat. Um, So I took it. These guys wanted nothing to do with it. So I cleaned it up, prepared it. We had a dinner party at a cabin a few nights later. I cooked the bear um, and it was gone. They, they ate it in entirety. They wanted more. They were asking me for recipes. Hmm. They want to know if I was going to take the rest of the bear home with me. Could they have some, they wanted to prepare it for friends and family to show them. Um, and so it was just kind of breaking down walls of what is actually edible. And, and, um, and so, you know, it's very easy to see why people don't want you to hunt bears because they're such an amazing creature. And if you watch them, they're, they, they have, uh, different elements of them that are very human-like, but they do very, very well to be hunted. Their flesh is amazing to eat. It's very rich, uh, in, in protein and nutrients. And then I've, I've not experienced this myself, meaning I haven't baked the pie with it myself. I've eaten it many times, but many, many friends of mine, their wives, uh, um, people up in Canada and some of the people in the uh, northern lower 48, they render down their bear fat. And uh, some of the my buddy's wives say it makes the best pie crust um, yeah. that they've ever used using it uh, to in, in the dough. And, uh, and I've eaten it many times. I've never baked a pie with it myself, but they're incredible animals. They're incredibly nutritious. Their hides are are stunning. And um where their populations are stable or growing, they do very, very well to be hunted. Now, there's an other side of this element, and it's the impact that bears have on ungulates, caribou, moose, um, elk, deer. And um, for instance, I did a predator hunt this last spring um, in western or kind of south central Alaska, if you will. I call it western Alaska, but it's really kind of south central. In this area that we're in, it's a two bear area. There are so many brown bears in this area that actually the state of Alaska wants you to shoot two bears in this area. Other areas of Alaska, let's say Kodiak Island, the Alaska Peninsula, areas like this, you're only allowed to shoot one bear every four years. So here we are in Alaska. Here's the state of Alaska. Here's the panhandle. Here's the peninsula. Kodiak Island sits right here. So Kodiak Island in the peninsula were you to hunt brown bears here, it's one every four years. But up in this area of South Central and Southwest Alaska, there are so many brown bears and they have such an impact on the moose population that they want hunters to take up to two bears each and you can do it every single year. Wow. And um, the reason is because the brown bears do so well there that come calving season for the moose – the bears, they know where the moose calve, and they will just walk 
incessantly along these rivers. They'll circle lakes. And as soon as a moose, they'll even follow a cow. And as soon as she drops her calves, boom, they'll pounce on it and kill and eat the calves. And so obviously some of the moose are successful in calving because the, the moose population is, is, you know, there are, there is a recruitment every year, but there is a huge, there's a tremendous loss um, in both the caribou and moose in this area. Uh, the Molchatna herd uh, of caribou um, was kind of uh, decimated by overhunting from people and then also from the caribou just having a general crash. But now that the population was overhunted by people, and I think the state of Alaska learned, at least that's that's my um, summation, is that these populations, um, because this, this population of caribou lives so close to a, a major metropolitan areas where airplanes could reach them pretty um, easily that they they got overhunted in my opinion, but now that they're down, the brown bears are just wreaking havoc on them and they're calving and and um, and so between them and the moose, like the, this this bear population has to be taken down quite a bit. And then there are areas same with black bears. There are areas where black bears are, you know, stable and and probably slightly growing, but most areas I would say are actually trending towards um, quite a bit of growth and would do very very well to be to be hunted, but you, you know, it's, it's very easy to see why somebody can't get on board with hunting because we take an animal's life. And when you look at a forest that's empty, when you get out of your car at a pullout, uh, where you're going to take photos, if you're driving down the freeway, let's just say in Alaska, you're driving down the highway and there's a little pullout of a really pretty area and you pull out and you say, I'm going to take some photographs and a, and a tourist gets out of their car and they see a moose or they see a grizzly bear and they're able to take photos or just even see them. And they're like, oh, here's this huge landscape. And I saw one moose or I saw one bear. Wouldn't it be great if I got and looked at this landscape and I saw 10 moose or 10 bears? Wouldn't it be great if we stopped hunting and these animal populations could grow to where there's animals, you know, to where there'd be more visible to us? But that's really not what is going to happen for the most part is you know if we started stopped hunting in a particular area populations would grow a little bit more uh to a point where there'd be more individuals but that just means there's going to be more loss of life uh in in other areas like the population has to have this immigration immigration has to have this recruitment from young being brought in but there needs to be a a, a die off as well and and uh, it's kind of a utilization of this resource the resource is going to kind of bulge and live in in and of itself but if we don't if we're not sitting there um taking control of this population watching this population taking some individuals from it it's going to end up growing and growing and growing and going through certain crashes and going through certain elements that mother nature is going to do anyway and so um we can have our cake and eat it too we can regulate these species we can actually have um great hunting bring lots of finances into the economy, lots of finances into the conservation realm and, uh, and really manage the population and also observe the population Hmm. very, very often. If it wasn't for a hunter, no one would even see these animals, not ever. Uh, you know, like a lot of people deregulated or they, they took, uh, grizzly bears. Um, they made it illegal to hunt grizzly bears in British Columbia. I, I, I would guess the lion's share of people that voted to stop grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia live, live in Vancouver 
and have never seen a grizzly bear, will never see a grizzly bear. They put on their Patagonia jacket. They put on their Patagonia puffy jacket to go downtown and get a latte with their friends to walk down to the city park. And, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not ever going to venture out into the wilderness where you might see a bear be attacked by a bear, hunt a bear, watch a bear fish, whatever it may be. And, and so they're, you know, they're kind of involving themselves in a system that they have no business involving themselves in. Hunters are the, we're the first line observers. Mm. Uh, biologists want to talk to us because we're the ones seeing the animals. We're the ones seeing the the habitats. We're the ones seeing kind of like, Hey, you know, I, I'm seeing things changing. And, and um, very often um, we have all this data report when we get done with the hunt. I don't think a lot of people really realize that, that the, you know, say it, we're being the state of Alaska state of Alaska wants us to report on our hunts to, to figure out the data and see what we saw, see what we, what we accomplished. Um, how long were we out there? What happened, you know, and, and, uh, it's just, just a really fantastic way to, uh, conserve animals, to, um, have, have true conservation, um, true habitat, habitat, um, restoration, and to really keep an eye on a population and engage in, and, uh, and bears are, are no different than, than deer species. Mm. But I've heard that like a male boar or whatever will be, you know, he'll have his area of territory or whatever, and he'll be so dominant there. He'll basically kill anything that's in there that he doesn't want there, like may not even eat it. Like he'll just literally kill like other cubs, other bears, just for the – they're so sort of savage that they will kill everything, like basically everything, and maybe only eat a small portion of what they – but they'll go through and just kill everything, right? Um, I mean, I, I've heard different elements like that, and there is some truth to that. There is, you know, brown bears will, uh, big male boars, uh, black bears, brown bears, grizzly bears. Um, sure, uh, polar bears are wanderers, so it probably doesn't fit them as much. But they have their territories, right? And it's a massive territory that they have, and and um, and when they kind of move through it. This is their place. Like they they don't have another predator outside of man once they get to a certain size. And so, um, boars will predate on cubs. Um, females will come back into estrus. If a, if a boar can get rid of cubs, that female then becomes an available female in the near future. And so, um, hmm. just like most anything in mother nature, that this boar grizzly bear, let's just say, or this boar brown bear, he wants his genes to continue on in, in, uh, in the system of population. He doesn't want another boar's genes. And so when he sees cubs from another boar, um, you know, he's going to kill him. He might even kill the sow, which is odd because you think he just got rid of a female, but if he has an opportunity to kill and sometimes eat or not eat, but he, if he has an opportunity to, um, to kind of stake his claim in his territory, um, very often they do it. And, and, and oftentimes they don't like, I've seen big boars walk past sows. I've seen sows attack big boars. Uh, like I've seen a cow with uh, a sow with cubs, you know, kind of chase a boar and the boar run away. Like, geez, like lady, like, what is your deal? Like, I'm just Hmm. going down here, but it all seems to stem from, um, territory and resources. Like if there's a year where there's a lot of fish, that boar will tolerate a lot. His belly's full of salmon. He is fat and sassy. If there's a time when there's a lot of berries and a lot of fish, doubly as good. He is, you know, 
has a lot less care in the world. But if there's a year where the fish run is really small or his fishing spot has changed in some manner, or there's another young boar trying to stake up a claim in his fishing area or, or a sow with cubs has moved into his fishing area. That is very dangerous for her and her cubs. Like he will kill them just for being there just to get his resources back to him. Like he is, he's greedy in that sense, right? They're not um, bloodthirsty killers, but they are um, kind of, they, they will kind of have that chicken in a hen house, right? If you get a, if you get a, a, a fox in a hen house, you get a fox in the hen house, he'll kill all the chickens, even though he's only going to take one or two to eat, but he'll kill all the chickens because his mindset is, is kind of that to do so. So I think it really comes down to a lot of um, resource allocation, resource management. And again, that's where you start looking at a population of bears. They can be left alone to do whatever it is that they're going to do. And, you know, people will get attacked, which is fine. A lot of human beings are like, well, just wait till the first human gets attacked by a grizzly bear. And I'm kind of, you know, like it happens. Like hmm. if you're going to go out in the wilderness and you're going to hunt fish or even you're a birder and you get mauled by a grizzly bear or killed by a grizzly bear. So be it. That's how life, it's, life has ups and downs. And, uh, and sometimes when a bear is on top, you chew it on your skull. That's, <laughs> you know, it's more of the, that's on the downside, but <laughs> it happens. And so like, um, just because you're a human being and because you have an aunt Millie and because we get together for Thanksgiving every year, doesn't mean that you get to be absent from the rules of mother nature. When you're mm. out in the wilderness, everybody partakes in predator and prey when you, when you open the door and you go out into a certain area. And so, um, but you know, if, if we leave these things to be unchecked, well then it, it starts to get kind of really messy. And, and, uh, like I said before, nobody's really paying attention to these systems. So, um, you know, bears are killing bears, bills are going to, bears are going to kill people, uh, resources are going to get overtaken. And then all of a sudden, you know, then, then what do we do? Let's say we stop brown bear hunting in South central Alaska or Western Alaska. And we're just like, you know what? Let's leave the bears alone. We're only here to hunt caribou and moose. And then all of a sudden the caribou and moose hunters, cause no one else will tell you about it. Just the caribou and moose hunters will be the ones coming to the state saying, Hey, I've been hunting moose here since I was a little boy. We see 20 to 30 moose in a 10 day hunt every year. And we usually kill one to two bulls during this hunt. But now we're going to the same place where we used to see 20 to 30 individuals and kill one or two. And now we're seeing one or two moose and we're not killing any. Hmm. So what's going on? And again, only the hunters will be the ones reporting those numbers. No one else is going out in these areas and even paying attention. And, uh, even a fly fisherman goes out to this area, unless he's going to the same area, unless he's engaging with this wildlife, he's not going to be able to report back to the biologists and say, Hey, something's going on with the caribou. Something's going on with the moose. So, you know, that, that is a very important job for a frontline observer, which, which is the hunter and fisherman, um, to kind of maintain these populations, kind of observe these populations. And, and, um, and I think that's an important element that people often forget about, but, Bears do very well to be hunted where their populations are stable or growing. And, um, and the other wildlife in their region do very, very well to have those bears hunted and maybe even, you know, a tad over hunted. If you were going to go, you know, if there's this kind of ebb and flow between bears and moose um, and the bears are steadily rising, the moose are steadily falling. Well, we want to hunt the bears 
and maybe reduce moose tag to get it back to here. But even if we were to get it to here, and I'm, this is unintelligent what I'm speaking of right now, but this is just a, a theory. If we were to get the bears even down a little bit to where the moose start growing a little bit, and there's some harvest huntability hunting opportunity, well, that's, you know, that's, that's okay. Like that, that mm-hmm. is an element that we can deal with. Or if the moose population is slightly down and the bear population is up and we have a really good huntability resource here for the bears, that that's okay. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of keeping these things as in balance as possible and really being a frontline observer to kind of understand what's going on. But, um, bear meat's delicious. Bear hides are beautiful. And, um, and removing a couple of large boars from an area over a season, um, I think has for the most part, only a positive impact outside of that individual boar losing his life. I think that's really the singular detriment. Um, but, but but really the population, both the bears and the moose, um, tend to grow and tend to flourish from the removal of, of that one old boar or a few old boars. Yeah, right. And, mate, in specifically hunting them like with the bow and that, they're a pretty soft animal, aren't they? Like their, their body is, is, is fairly sort of soft. Like it's, an arrow will generally penetrate through a bear. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. zip right through them. They, you know, bears are bears are designed to fight other bears, right? So their head is big. Their jaws are powerful. Their forearm is massive. They have huge biceps and huge pecs. And from here forward, from their pecs forward, they're designed to fight another bear. And then you kind of have this big soft spot in between, like below their pecs. You know, you talk to the backside of their rib cage, their guts, up until their kind of their belt line, if you will, is the arrow is going to blow even from like a 50-pound compound bow is going to blow right through them if you hit them in the right spot in the rib cage and then you get back to their rear legs and it becomes big and powerful and muscular again so you mm-hmm. want to stay away from the front and the back but in the middle yeah they they do very well to be hunted in and um you know there's a bow hunter from alberta named archie nesbitt he shot a 10 foot plus bear on on video um fred bear has done it uh um I'm Craig. Uh, I'm losing the gentleman's name that had the former world record. Um, anyway, um, Brittingham, Jack Brittingham shot a monster on film and you look at all these bears and some of these guys are using little tiny broadheads, but the, the air is going in and within not even 30 seconds, these bears are expiring and they're not even going very far at all. And for mm-hmm. me, um, I've shot um, probably the biggest bear that's, that I've shot the biggest black bear that I've shot is over seven feet, over 400 pounds. Wow. And my arrow hit him and he died in probably eight seconds, 10 seconds, something that he went, he went, um, 10 feet from when I shot him. And, uh, same thing, uh, you know, I, uh, to bring it back to you in Australia, like I arrowed a very large water Buffalo in the Northern territories, uh, 35 yard shot, I think it was a 660 grain arrow and I put it literally on the X for that bull. And I mean, he died in, um, less than 10 seconds. I mean, it was over with before, um, before he even knew what was up, you know, as he was starting to retreat from something that had happened, he's spun around and, and, uh, took a big exhale of blood and, and fell over dead. 
Must have been a Cayuga broadhead, mate. It wasn't a Cayuga, but I'm using those guys now. It was a um, <laughs> God. What, what did I shoot that thing with? I think it was a um, I think it was a grizzly stick head that I shot that with. But the Cayugas, oh my word! Yeah, I was talking to Joel about them the other day, and uh, I was actually chatting with a couple of boys just on text uh, this Arvo from Cayuga, and they said, "Oh, because I put out a little bit of an ad about the." episode with Joel and that I mentioned those boys in it and um, they said, oh, thanks for mentioning us, whatever. And then mm-hmm. they said, oh, there's another guy, he, one of his mates, Donnie, he uses them too. I said, oh, well, I'm chatting with him tonight, so I'll have a chat with him about him. <laughs> yeah, there, I've only shot one animal with it so far with my longbow, but it was um, it was devastating. And I just ordered, uh, before I went to Alaska, I just ordered um, more 175 grain heads from them and then um, – they just came out with a wide bleeder cut. So they have bleeders on them, on the pilot cut. Yeah. And then uh, I the just Zots, ordered wide, wide bleeders. Oh, uh, yes. Extra, extra wides. Yeah. I think they got a Zot. Yeah, yeah. They got a Zot as well, which doesn't have the bleeders. I think it's a little bit bigger as well. A lot of guys are using now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. seems good. Mate, shot placement on a bear, mate. So, like, are you trying to double lung it? How is that? The Is that, yeah, behind the shoulder a little bit? Like, where are you? Are you waiting for a side on shot or do you, can you do frontal shots on them or how does that, like, what do you like to do there? Yeah, you can, you can take a frontal shot. I, I wouldn't unless, um, unless the situation dictated it. And that's the one thing with, with, uh, big bears, not necessarily black bears. You could, because of a black bear, you could fight for your life. I'm not saying you're going to win. But let's say you're an archer. Let's say you're an archer. You're by yourself. And you don't have a gun, which I've done many, many times. Um, <laughs> and a bear is approaching you, and it's coming from the front. Well, that's up to you to take that shot or to eventually just say, "Hey, bear! Hey, bear!" You know, and he, you know, hopefully turns and runs off. But if he does attack, you know, you have some chance to defend yourself with a black bear, some chance you take that to a grizzly or brown bear, that chance starts to diminish greatly. Um, you're not going to defend yourself. You're going to play dead. You're going to try to get that bear to think that the threat has been eliminated as fast as possible so that he or she is going to leave thinking that you are done. So he or she can leave with a clear conscience of that. You're not going to hurt them. And then you can get up and retreat but if you're if I'm bow hunting a brown bear, grizzly bear, and my guide is behind me with a rifle, which is the state law in, in Alaska, and that brown bear sees me, and because very often, like if they see you, very often they're gonna turn and start coming at you to see what you are. And they're gonna come at you and and I shot a grizzly bear that I have right over there. Um I actually missed it. Um, because I, my arrow hit a twig, but it's the, in the other side, our film, the other side, you can see this bear coming around a bush. And once he kind of sees us, he starts coming and you know, this thoracic inlet, that little circle where your head plugs into your rib cage. If you pop a bear right there below their chin and the arrow goes in, that's as your rib cage comes up, it comes up to the hole that your spinal cord and your neck come out of. But if you can punch an arrow right down through that hole, basically where their heart sits and has their dorsal aorta comes off their heart, the large artery in the body and that runs down their spinal cord, the arrow goes in right above the heart and cuts that dorsal aorta off and they're dead in just a couple of seconds. They bleed out in less than 10 seconds. But 
Um, so you can shoot him right there. And with a big bear, you might have to take that shot mm-hmm. because with a 10 foot brown bear, if he comes, if he's at 20 yards and he's coming and you're at full draw, the incidence of you standing up going, Hey bear, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey bear. It, that might not work at that distance. Like he might say, Holy cow, I'm in danger, the bear. And he's like, I need to pounce on this thing, make sure it's not going to hurt me. And if they do that, you're in big trouble. Like mm. you're at very least, you're going to get chewed on, probably scalped because they oftentimes they try to bite the top of your head mm. and they try to puncture your skull. But oftentimes humans have our heads are too big. So their teeth just slide up ripping all your flesh off and, and um, basically scalping you. And then they're going to bite your arms. They're going to bite, you know, you just, you're going to have to try to play dead as best you can while getting chewed on. Mm. And um, Jesus. so you could take that shot because as soon as the arrow hits them, hopefully they're going to retreat, but you're going to have to make a really good shot. But yes, mm. generally you don't want them to know that you're there. You want to get into a position where that bear is going to be walking by. You're going to want him to be slightly quartering away or totally broadside. And you don't want to tuck it too tight to the shoulder. Their lungs are a little bit further back than a deer, but just a couple inches off the shoulder and zipping all the way through. And it's money. Like he is, he doesn't even know it yet, but he is very, very dead. And um, I would take a frontal shot on a grizzly bear or a brown bear just because of the incidence of it's kind of now or never. Um, Mm -hmm. But but you generally want to get yourself into a position where you can shoot one when he's walking by. Yeah, right, mate. And what about their senses? So no doubt they've got an amazing uh, like scent through their nose. What's their eyesight like? Do they pick up movement, their hearing, et cetera, or is it mainly their nose that is their main tool there? Their nose is the best. Like people can't – it can't be overstated. Their mm. nose – embarrasses a deer's nose it's not even comparable it's, it can't even be discussed in the same conversation there I, d- I don't know what the percentages is but let's just say for for ease of conversation a bear's sense of smell is 10 times that of a deer and you know a deer's sense of smell is hmm. ridiculous like they can smell where we stepped three days ago and it fr- flips them out well a bear can smell that uh, infinitely better and so they're um, I've heard, I've read, and I've heard that bears have poor eyesight. My experience is that they don't have poor eyesight. My experience that I've, I think people have, and this is just my opinion. I think people have watched the casual nature of how a black bear, grizzly bear, brown bear reacts when they see a human. I think they've mistook that for having poor eyesight. Mm-hmm. I think a bear has, you know, eyesight like we do. I think they can see as good as a human or nearly as good as a human or slightly better than a human, however you want to say it. I don't th- I don't think they have amazing amazing eyesight because they, you know, for their body size, they have really tiny eyes. Whereas that's how I kind of look at things. Mm-hmm. And is how they're designed. So like, you know, you look at um you know, you look at like a bald eagle in their eyes or you look at an owl and obviously they have big eyes because they're looking at night. But you kind of can see this where their eyes are positioned, how their eyes are positioned. And so, you know, brown bears have relatively small eyes. And so I, I, I don't think 
they're using their eyes nearly as much as they're using their ears and certainly not as much as they're using this massive nose at the end. But I do think they're using their eyes and how I've seen them around me is that I see them see me because their, their body language sometimes oftentimes changes. It's subtle, but they kind of look at you and they, when a bear sees you, I mean, oftentimes when they see you, they just split, like they run, they will retreat so fast that your head will spin. It's insane how fast they will run away if they see a human being very often, but sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, they kind of like those, you know, they'll be walking, you'll see them, they'll look at you out of the corner of their eye and then, you know, they just kind of keep an eye on you and they'll, you know, either angle towards you or the angle away. But I think people have mistook that as like, Ooh, he didn't see me, but I think they have, I think they have pretty decent eyesight. And as far as their hearing goes, I think they're, you know, their hearing is pretty keen. I mean, it's, it's difficult to give a level of their eyesight or hearing because we so often end up talking about their nose, mm. but I think their ears and their eyes are just fine. It's just that their nose is of another world. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, incredible creature. Like you said, that's a good insight into there, mate. Uh, yeah, you've got some knowledge and obviously a fair bit of experience in hanging out with them and observing their behaviors. So yeah, well, uh, I'm sure people will get a fair bit out of the knowledge that you've imparted there. They're incredible, man. And and the one thing that I don't have any experience with is I've been around a lot of black bears and I've been charged by several black bears. Uh, I've been around a fair number of grizzlies, both in caribou hunting, moose hunting, and then also grizzly bear hunting. I've been around a fair number of brown bears, um, same caribou, moose, and, and brown bear hunting. Um, but I've never had any experience with being out West in the United States. And I hear people telling me this, both hunters and non-hunters alike. And uh, I don't want to diminish this because I have no experience with it. But if I see a grizzly bear when I'm in Alaska, I take note of where it is, the distance, the size, what the bear is doing. And in relation to like my camp, let's say I'm not bear hunting on, I see grizzly bear. I want to understand okay, is this bear living in this valley? Am I going to see this guy every day? Is he kind of heading towards my tent? Should I head towards my tent to make sure he's not going to go in my tent? Because, you know, the tent is kind of my last, outside of just wilderness survival, my tent is kind of my last resource here. So if he goes and destroys it, that's not good. And I know if he's going to go to destroy my tent and I'm at my tent, he's very likely to run away. So I kind of am judging that stuff. You know, if I see a bear walking across a ridgeline and my tent is over here, and he's heading in that direction. You know, I, I have to contemplate, like, do I abandon my stock or my hunt, go to my tent to defend my tent, not with lethal force, but just with my human scent. Um, but I've heard that the grizzly bears out West in Montana, Wyoming, you know, are very aggressive, m- far more likely to attack. And, um, and I've, I've just heard things from people like, man, like you really got to be, on your P's and Q's with bears out here. And, and I haven't experienced it myself, so I don't want to speak to it, but um, yeah, I've heard those bears uh, can be quite a bit more aggressive, but what I would say to your listeners um, by and large bears are not uh, you know, they need to be respected and you need to have some awareness of bear biology and how to move about them. But um, they're not monsters in the forest. They're not, they're not bloodthirsty. They're not out to kill you. They, they uh, are just existing in their, in their space and in their ter- territory, their habitat. Yeah. Wow. 
Amazing, yeah. Love to love to get the opportunity to observe him in the wild one day. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a little segment called the Your Yarn segment. It's a time where we usually get the person on our podcast to talk about a memorable hunt. I heard you once talking about a mountain lion hunt that you went on. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was an extremely interesting story about the way that that what that lion was doing to cover its tracks almost and get a free yeah. hunt for itself. Yeah, uh, it's really cool. Um, so a good friend of mine, Ben Storak, uh, lives in British Columbia, and he invited me up. He has a new hunting territory that he acquired a couple of years ago uh, where he hunts uh, mule deer, uh, California bighorn sheep, mountain lions, black bears, and uh, and he has some moose and stuff there as well. But so he invited me up. We're good friends, and he said, "Hey, I'd love to, I'd love to host you on a lion hunt." And uh, I said, "Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, I don't really have any interest in hunting lions, uh, and um, and I don't really have any interest in hunting uh, over hounds uh, to chase a lion tree and shoot it. And he's like, okay, well, you know, he kind of called my bluff. He's like, well, you're the guy that's always saying, you know, like, don't knock it till you try it. You know, you should go at, if you're against hunting, you need to open up your mind until you experience it and talk to a hunter and talk to a good hunter and experience, uh, fresh meat from the wilderness until you do those things. I really don't want you to judge hunters or, or hunting. So he's like, you know, I'm kind of calling you out a little bit. So I said, okay, well, you know, this well said, I, I, you know, I'm was judging a book by its cover. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll come out on a lion hunt, but I'm not promising you that I'll kill a lion. Um, but I'll come on a lion hunt. And he said, okay, that's, that's cool. And so I showed up there and I picked me up at the airport. It's freezing cold outside, lots of snow. And, and, um, he got in the car and he had kind of a little grin on his face and, um, we had bought some donuts from a local bakery. And so him and I were driving up into the mountains eating donuts. Actually, I think he wasn't eating donuts. I think I was eating donuts, <laughs> but, um, we were driving up in there and he goes, Hey, I found a large cat track and uh, I'm really excited about this cat. Cause this cat's been around for a while. And, um, and Ben kind of said something like he's been, and I might be misspeaking here, but I think Ben said something like he's, terrorizing local ranchers or whatever, something like that. I think he, Ben might disagree with me, but it was something along those lines. I was like, okay. So I go, I said, but first I want to meet with a ministry biologist and I want to talk to him about lions. And I want to see like what he feels like about the lion population in the Fraser river Valley. And long story short, I went and met with the biologist and he said, yep, we would love you to take an individual Donnie to harvest an individual and um, he goes, if I'm being honest with you, we, we, we'd love for you to take two. You know, he's like, that's, that's how many lines are there. And that's how hard they are on the deer and sheep. I was like, okay. So I bought my lion tag. We went up to camp. And um, the next morning, basically, we kind of all split up to go look for lion tracks and to see what happened. Uh, lion hunting is largely a painted picture from what happened the night before. If there's a new skiff of snow, if the lion hunted last night, he'll leave tracks, of course, and then we we can start hunting him. But if the tracks are multiple days old, we don't know where he could be or what he's doing. But lo and behold, 
um, I went up Valley, Ben went down Valley and Ben struck the track of this large lion that they've been seeing. And he knew this because this lion had tore its, one of its pads on its back foot really bad. And so even though it wasn't hurting the lion, really, I don't believe so. When the lion would take a step, he would leave a little dab of blood every time in the snow. And because it was in a certain part of his pad, it just was kind of like he was re-injuring it while he was walking. So one thing that I found very interesting was right away in the morning, we found this lion. He walked right through a huge herd of cows and calves in the morning. I mean, he walked quite literally amongst the cow and calves in the morning. And um, we had talked to the rancher and got permission across his land. And he's like, yeah, I've been seeing that lion. And, um, and uh, he's like, you're welcome to come on my ranch and hunt it. Uh, he's like, but I, he doesn't bother my, and I kind of asked him, I was like, does he kill calves or whatever? He's like, no, he's not touched my cows. He's like, I see him walking and he'll walk literally right through my cows and my cows will barely even react to him. So I thought that was interesting that Mm. cows and calves, you know, barely even reacted to this huge predator walking amongst them. And he was cutting, what he would do is he would go up into the, uh, the, uh, conifers up into the pine trees up into the bush and then at night he'd come down and cross these uh, grazing prairies and then he'd drop into the cliffs above the fraser and that's where he'd hunt sheep and deer and so we got on his track and it was too dangerous to release dogs where we were because it was so such steep cliffs and it was so icy so we just tracked it on foot and it was pretty easy to track because of his bloody steps. So we knew we were always on the same line and we kind of just tracked him. And so we slowly just tracked him through and he would lead us to all of these kills. He led us, I forget the number now, you know, these stories kind of all start to blend together, but he led us to something like 12 or 13 or 14 kills or something like that. It was a huge number of kills. You know, we'd see him, he'd, he'd kind of go around this bush and then down into this ravine and then we'd be like, Oh, there's a dead mule deer. You know, we go investigate it and, you know, we'd see wolf tracks too. And then we'd go up and, and then we'd find a dead sheep and then we'd find a dead mule there and we'd find a dead doe mule there and we'd find a dead young buck and we'd find all these things. And then one of the times we literally come over a hill and there he is. Um, the photographer that I was with, William Altman, he's like, Donnie, he's right there in front of us. And ha- if I had a rifle, we could have shot him right there um, without even using dogs. Like he was on top of a doe yearling mule deer. He had killed her and he was eating her. And when we came over the hill and he looked back at me, he was so angry that we were interrupting his breakfast. He turned and looked over and he looked black to me. It was really funny because I've heard several people tell me that they have seen black jaguars in their lives in the United States, which doesn't happen. Jaguars have been photographed in the United States and Arizona they come up the kind of the Jaguar highway, if you will, from South and Central America. They come up and they can be, they, there's been photographs of Jaguars in Arizona, things like that. But all the ones that I've seen have been of spotted Jaguars, not the black variety. But anyway, many times when I've been out West, ranchers, farmers, hunters of like, do you know that there's a black panther here? And, you know, they'll say like, I saw a black Jaguar and, um, you know, I just listened to them because it's not true, but 
I know that they think they saw something. And then when I saw this lion, it occurred to me, I was like, oh, I think they're seeing cougars. Because this guy, when he bristled up, because he was angry, when he bristled up and he puffed his tail up, he looked black. Like all of his fur looked like it turned black because he was bristled up. He slowly walked up this hill and he kept looking over his shoulder. He slipped away. And we continued to follow him. And then we, we ended up getting up to the forest and he had crossed this road. And we went something like, we hiked something like 24, 25, 26 kilometers. And then we released the hounds and it was very, very physical. A couple of hours, uh, you know, nearly waist deep snow, mostly uh, knee deep and mid thigh deep. And sometimes waist deep snow going up this steep mountains incline. And we treat them once and treat them a second time. Uh, massive animal. And I thought he was going to be panicked when I saw him in the tree. I thought he was going to be panicked because of the dogs. I thought he'd be ears back, snarling, swatting, but he wasn't any of that. He was just sitting in the tree, totally calm and kind of annoyed by the dogs. He even jumped out right in front of me. I was the only one that saw it. He jumped out right into the dogs and then he ran down the hill and then went up another tree. And it so happens that's where I shot him. That's where I killed him. But, um, Long story short, I did kill the lion. Um, I thought it was a very old male. It turned out to be a three-year-old male, which was amazing because of what a machine he was at hunting. Mm. And he was a uh, he was 185 pounds. So a very, very large lion in just a three-year's time span and uh, in, in a very successful hunter and a very large specimen for the area. And, uh, and so it was really cool to kind of, be involved in all that aspects. And then the lion meat um, ended up being, it's literally uh, probably the best wild game I've ever had in my life as absolutely fantastic uh, table fare. And so it's just a very, very rewarding. Uh, and that's actually him behind me over my shoulder. See that? Oh, high yeah. Yep. Going there. In the yeah, right. yeah, That's him right there. Um, but on the sport killing side it? of things, Donnie. So yeah. He worked out that he was stashing prey for the wolves. Is that right? So then basically they would leave him alone to eat his own meal. He would kill for them basically and then leave them as decoys. Is that what you worked out? That's right. And so when I talked to the ranchers, um, when I talked to the ranchers, and this is funny how perception goes. When I talked to the ranchers, they said that this lion was sport hunting. He was killing deer and leaving them, killing sheep and leaving them. And then when I talked to some of the other hunters and the houndsmen, Kind of the same story. It was almost like they were villainizing this animal, almost justifying our right to take it out of the population. Like, hey, he's a sport killer. He's doing this. He's doing that. But when I ended up talking to the ministry biologists and actually doing my own research, I found that what he was was being harassed by packs of wolves. The wolves were lazily stealing his kills he's far more efficient at killing than they are and so they would just follow him when he would kill they would steal it and so he and again i'm doing the same thing that the hunters and the ranchers were doing making a summation here but what the biologist says they very very often will start to kill animals and they'll just leave them to give the wolves something to eat so that they can go on and kill and have their own meal without being harassed by two or more wolves so you know if it's just a cat on a kill and there's a single wolf, the wolf is going to be in big trouble. If he tries to mess with that cat, like it's going to be a problem for him. I'm not saying the cat's going to kill the wolf, but he's leaving with 
a big problem. He's going to have holes in his body when he leaves. If it's two wolves, maybe even the same situation. But then with two wolves, one wolf can face the cat and the other one can go around and kind of start biting at the cat's tail, biting at his back, you know, hmm. which now the cat turns around. Now this wolf comes in and bites his butt, you know, it starts to get in a kind of a yin and a yang. And well, you add a third wolf to that. Now we've got a problem, right? Now we got a wolf facing you. We got a wolf biting your side and we got a wolf biting your butt. And so like, that's that, that's where a cat is probably like, I've had enough. I'm out of here. You guys have it. And so that's what it really turned out. It seemingly turned out that that's what this cat was doing was not necessarily sport killing these animals, but killing his animals. So that the wolves would kind of have something as well. And the wolves would leave them alone. Crazy man. Yeah. I thought that was a cool story. Like, so intelligent that animal you know like working that out to then just yes all for the fact to let itself have some peace while it could have a meal yeah and the, you know and one of the reasons that the biologists it's not that they're anti-predator they're not anti-predator at all but it's just that the the sheep are kind of stuck in the cliffs along the river and in the the mountainsides along the river it's it's this narrow band of habitat for the sheep and so you know it's 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 an amusement park of hunting for them so as long as the cat comes out of the hills i'm sure he kills deer up in the hills and and is successful on rabbits or whatever it may be up in the hills but once he comes out and crosses that pasture and he drops into those cliffs those sheep that's their habitat that's where they live that's where they use the escape routes and they just become such successful hunters that that's why the biologists want the lions really kept in check because one lion, I forget the numbers now, but the biologists were telling me how many sheep a lion will kill in a year. And just a single lion or two can wipe out a whole population of sheep. If the sheep are in a small region and the lions aren't kept in check. Like they can really, really hammer the population of sheep. And so the the biologi- biologists are trying to be very, very careful. The sheep are very difficult to manage. They're very limited. Um, and so, you know, this is what I was telling you before. With the grizzly bears and the moose, you know, it's probably okay if we have slightly too many bears and the moose are suffering as long as we're hunting the bears. It's also probably okay if we have slightly too many moose or a good amount of moose and not a great, you know, the bears are down a little bit as long as we're hunting the moose and keeping them in check. Well, this is one of those situations where the lions are here and the sheep are down here. Mm. And so really like, you know, and Ben hunts the sheep, but he kills one a year. I think he has maybe two tags a year where he kills and he'll go and kill two mature rams that probably weren't going to make the winter. So the rams that Ben is shooting are 10, 11, 12 years old. They're not going to make another winter or two. So he's really removing nothing. Hmm. Um, But these cats are way up here. And so they can have great effect on the sheep. And so that's why, you know, Ben has started the area that Ben got when he, when he got it, hadn't been cat hunted for a long time, hadn't been bear hunted for a long time. So, Ben went in there and really started hunting the cats and the bears um, quite a lot. Not too much, but quite a lot to try to, you know, he's trying to bring this these numbers down and, and try to get some more preservation on the sheep. And he's also doing, you know, he's also going to coalition conversations with domestic sheep because there are issues with domestic sheep spreading movie, uh, you know, spreading a disease to the wild sheep and having a 
horrible impact on the and the wild sheep. So it's not just predators mm. and prey. It's also a disease. It's also um, human intrusion. It's also loss of loss of habitat. You know, there are a lot of um, like anything in life. It's not black and white, right? Mm-hmm. Right now we're doing this podcast. There's my box and there's your box and there's a black line in the middle. That's not what life is really about, right? There's this blend that we have. And, and, um, and so it's managing all of these different things from animals to um, predators, to people, to farmers, ranchers, habitat, mm-hmm. you know, weather it's, it's, it's kind of everything, but that's where it kind of lies is you have the sheep way down here and the lines way up here. And, and so that's why when I went there and I learned about this, what, what I wanted to make sure of was that the sheep weren't here and the lions were here. And as hunters, we were villainizing the lions to justify killing them. And so that's why I wanted to talk to biologists. I wanted to make sure that we were somewhere in here before I started hunting. And then once I found out it was actually like this, I was like, oh yeah, I'm happy to happy to remove a lion. And then I also learned a lot about the houndsmen. It's a side note, but it was really amazing to watch the dogs work and, and, um, does it feel like cheating a little bit? Oh, for sure. Like, could I kill that lion without the dogs? 100%. If I was gun hunting, 100%, I would have shot that lion before I even released the dogs. Um, it was a difficult and dangerous bow shot to take. And, you know, I would have had to shoot at a walking, a lion walking away from me at like 80 or 90 yards. That's not a mm-hmm. shot to take. Um, if I was starving to death, would I have taken that shot? You you bet your ass I would have. But not, not in this hunting scenario. I'm not going to shoot that animal like that. But um, in releasing the hounds, I got to watch the dogs work. I got to watch the houndsmen work. Um, did we kill the cat? We did. But um, I do believe uh, whether I had to convince myself this or not, I did my research and I do believe we left the area better than which we found it. Yeah, crazy story. And yeah, I just found that super interesting, an amazing creature. The, obviously, the mountain lion, right? Pretty, pretty high up on the list, predator list. Yeah, they're so talented. They are so talented in how they move and they're silent. They have huge claws. They have huge feet. And you know, their 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 jaws are meant for, you know, they they clamp onto the throat, right? And and they just like they're very, very good at killing. Very, very good. What would that thing have weighed? This one was 185 pounds. This was like 100, 185, 190 pounds. It's a large cat. I've heard um, of 200 pounders. Wow. I've seen photos out of Alberta of, I think, what cats that might go 200 pounds. I think a lot of times when people say one is 200 pounds, they're probably full of it. Um, and they actually haven't weighed it. But um, I have seen some cats out of Alberta that I, you know, and I've I've also had some people that I very much respect tell me that their cat was nearing 200 pounds or however you want to say it and in that i believe but um i couldn't believe like when i quartered when i broke the cat down to his back straps and his front quarters and his hind quarters and then his inner loins like all the meat we took i couldn't believe how much muscle mass he had acquired in three years of Mm. life wow couldn't believe it amazing man awesome creatures right oh and they're so cool to see, you know, obviously that's just his hide. Um, but when I saw him standing on the limb, I couldn't believe the musculature and his big, he had a big belly, you know, cause he'd been eating that, that mm. mule deer dough and he's just, oh, so powerful. So wow. such a, such a cool animal. Amazing. All right, buddy. We'll, uh, we'll change things up a bit here, bud. Right. Okay. Folks, Felix here. 
It's time for the most important part of this rock show. You're funny as fuck up. Righto, buddy. So you're funny as fuck up. This is the most important part, brother. Let's. Uh, um, you spent you spent your whole life out in the bush, mate. You must have fucked some things up. Come on, what do you got for us? <laughs> many, uh, many, many times. Um, I have messed up in the realm of, uh, you know, once in the Arctic, I messed up with where I put my tent. Uh, this was a this was a major mistake. Of um, I got there. Uh, I was with William Altman, one of the photographers that I work with. And there was this cathedral of rock is so cool. It's on the top of the mountain, great conditions to put a tent up. I mean, literally flat as a pancake with this little kind of granite shale, um, not sand, but almost like little particles of rock. Perfect to camp on flat as a board. We pitched our teepee and we had, a cathedral of rock around us on three sides. And I'm like, okay, so we are protected from the West. We are protected from the South. We are protected from the East. It's just a little portion in the Northwest that our teepee is exposed. And so we set our tent up there. We were pleased as could be. We could see the whole landscape. Long story short, I think there's a reason that, this rock was kind of eroded in a three-quarter circle. And it's because most of the weather in this area was coming <laughs> from the Northwest. And so that night it blew like 70 plus, like hurricane force winds, absolutely brutal night outside all night, watching the stakes, our stakes literally rattling out of the ground outside of the rocks all night, pounding the stakes back in and like, it was a mess. So we ended up the next night we ended up moving. So, so that's a mistake. I've had countless errors in the regards of falling in rivers, almost falling off of cliffs. One time I was coming back. um, We were sheep hunting in the Chugach and I had to go poop. And so I went and went poop and um, I came back and, uh, and I was wearing, I was wearing a rain gear and I came, you know, I came walking back and, uh, and William's like, Hey, were you just going poop? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah. And I go, what, yeah, what do you see? You seen anything? He's like, no, but you have shit on your face. <laughs> and I said, I do. He's like, yeah. Did you touch your face while you're going poop? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you literally have shit on your face. <laughs> like I had a line of shit, like right here uh, on my face. Fuck. And we were and we were dying laughing, and I ended up like I looked and I shit on my rain pants, on my boots, oh, like it was, oh. uh, it was an absolute mess. But I've had, I mean, I've missed animals at ten yards. Mm. I've, um, you know, I've fallen. I can't even tell you how many times I've fallen or fell through the ice. Or it's, I, it's, it's almost a constant. I, it, mm. the er- the errors are. Um, that every trip comes with one. That's for sure. They're the things you learn from though, isn't it? You know, you fuck things yeah. up. They're the ones that you learn yeah. from, right? You learn nothing from winning every time, do you? No, man. Like, like it's so funny. I've been going to Alaska. I've probably been to Alaska 40 or 50 times. And this last year I hunted in Alaska 
we experienced something like 12 or 13, 14, 15 straight days of rain. Uh, my sleeping bag was soaked. I was, I was using a uh, waterproof, water-resistant down sleeping bag from a very popular company. And the thing was soaked the whole time. And I'm not blaming that company. There's no way you could – the amount of water that I had my sleeping bag in a trash bag would have been wet. Like it was just soaked. And so, um, you know, like I learned, like I sat up last year because usually your sleeping bag gets soaked and you have a day or two to dry it out. Then your sleeping bag gets soaked. You have a day or two to dry it out. Your sleeping bag gets soaked. Well, last year we had like 13, 14, 15 days of straight rain and it got soaked and it stayed soaked. Our clothes got soaked and they stayed soaked. Our boots got soaked and they stayed soaked. Like it was soaked. Everything was soaked. And still, like, you get up in the morning, you're wearing wet, long underwear, you're in a soaking wet sleeping bag, one that's supposed to have loft, you know, like, (laughs) 18 inches of loft, and it's a noodle, and then you're putting wet socks on, wet boots, you're, like, you're just getting dressed and soaking wet stuff, and then you're hunting dark to dark. Anyway, but, like, this year, I got home last year, and I ordered a sleeping bag called a Wiggies bag. It's a guy out of Colorado that makes some really technical gear and um and he makes these sleeping bags out of a synthetic uh insulation called lamellite he makes very very nice sleeping bags i've never used one but i have friends that use them and they swear by them because they're very functional when they're soaked they're very very functional when they're wet but they don't pack down a little like a down bag they pack down they're really big when they pack down so um but that's i'm i'll never take a down bag to alaska again never and you know so you learn these things right and then you learn how to calm and slow the process down of shooting. So you don't miss animals at 10 yards and, and, um, or, you know, scoping yourself. I scoped myself last year and I knew I was going <laughs> to scope myself last year because I had a sight in on a muzzle loader and I just need, I, this muzzle was sighted in, I shot it a bunch, but I wanted to shoot it one more time on the trip to make sure, okay, it's good. And so I had a really crappy rest. I'm shooting 200 yards. So I had to lean way into the gun to get into the rest and then i just squeeze the trigger like i always do and boom and i shoot and then you know i obviously my, my head hurt and was numb and i turned and looked at uh the photographer forest row and i turned and looked at him and we both just absolutely bust out laughing because <laughs> blood's just pouring down my face god we laughed so hard and then oh, yeah. um i think we've yeah, all been there anyway, i think we've all been there on yeah. those ones mate <laughs> That's just so funny, man. So funny. Oh, like it's like it's a comedy of errors, and um, you want to make sure your missteps aren't fatal, right? Yeah, you want to make sure they're funny, or mm. or you want to make sure they're uncomfortable. You just want to make sure they're not fatal. And and uh, really good men and women have have fallen by making a fatal misstep. And um, I've been very close myself. And uh, those are the ones you want to bury deep down inside and, and really remember. Really remember. Mm. Yeah. I've been there a few times myself. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up, buddy. I just got one last little question for you there, mate. And it was uh, a slightly slightly different path there. But uh, if you could send your 20-year-old self a text message, what would you say? Oh, man. I would. Uh, that's a really good question. Initially, my gut reaction is to tell my 20-year-old self to drop out of college um, and to educate myself 
and uh, educate myself with experiences and to become an annoying uh, an annoying person who would attach themselves to gifted folks that I would want to learn from and don't let them say no thank you and don't let them say no and don't let them say not right now and embed myself in them and to learn from them. I feel like, for instance, when I went and worked on Tigers in Bangladesh and Nepal, I feel like if I just would and I if I just would have went and worked for all of these gifted biologists and never went through the courses, I feel like I would have learned more mm. and the real information and the real biorhythms of life than than going to college. But really, um, I would encourage myself to uh, to become a mindful, uh, present person. And to really understand that the only thing you're really chasing is is your own life experiences. You know, we get so caught up with buying a car or buying a house or getting a degree or checking these boxes so that when we hand our resume to someone else, they look at it and go, oh, wow, like you've really done some stuff. But really, if you just go and seek that um, intellectual properties through experiences – and through, uh, you know, read as much as you can, experience as much as you can, and you kind of um, push yourself in those manners and kind of let the flow of your life take it. That's, I would really encourage myself to, to, uh, to go down that road of, of, uh, of exploration. I just think far too, especially when I was growing up. I'm 48 right now. I'm going to be 49 next month. You know, when I was growing up. You all, everyone had to fall into this slot of, of what is successful. And then now with, with, uh, with the internet, with cell phones, now the, the, the path of success has totally changed. Mm. And, uh, and so, you know, you used to not be able to get a job without that resume. And now, now I think you can, you can really showcase who you are. And, and, um, I think the biggest detriment to people right now uh, like some of the guys that write me and, and ask about jobs or ask about how, Hey, how do I do what you do? Um, I think some of the detriment right now is that people don't really understand what the word authentic means. They think it is a catchphrase or a descriptor that is, um, a positivity in your life. But really if nobody's watching and, and there is no Instagram, there is no Facebook, there is no making movies or writing books, how would you live your life? And mm. if that is how you would live your life, then you can live your life in that manner and write the books and make films or whatever it is that you want to do. And people will be interested in it because that's who you are. Mm. But if you're forcing it at all, um, people will smell that out. And it, it, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's not very appealing to, to, uh, to those of us paying attention. And so, Hmm. Um, I think it's important to be yourself and, and it's life is such a, such a flicker of time that you have to convince yourself, uh, to harness every single moment to, to be with the people that you really want to be with, to go to the place that you really want to go with. And, and, uh, there is no tomorrow. There is no next year. You, you know, you just have to, hmm. you have to make the best of it and do what you can where you are with what you have, you know? Well, mate, that was, uh, I think that's a really good question, but 
and I have the I'm fortunate enough to ask a lot of people this question and you know to have the hindsight or or the ability to to listen to what other what people would say they really like the analogies you use there and like being authentic and you know especially because these days I've had a few people seeing you guys of the bow hunting community and stuff say man yeah I think you're your podcast is quite authentic and stuff like that. It's not, you know, it's not an act. It's not. I'm not trying to get likes, or I generally give a yeah. shit about this stuff and and love talking to people about just like yourself uh, about all this, mate. And we'll wind it up there. But on that note, man, I can't thank you enough. I I did chase you for a while because I knew you were busy, but I really wanted to pick your brain and have the opportunity to learn from you and work out you know what type of person that you were i had heard certain things and well, they were all positive but mate the next time someone i hear someone maybe doesn't have the understanding of what hunting is or what a what a person who would represent hunting would be i'll, I'll be playing them this podcast once i edit it up because we've been going for two and a half hours i thought it would go for an hour and a half <laughs> but mate so authentic and just you can you know truly passionate and a really fantastic representative of what i think all hunters of any aspect or even just human beings should try to be like because uh yeah i just think yeah you, um you sort of bleed my mind a little bit with uh the way that you approached it and that true passion for the outdoors and the way that you live your life so Mate, it's a credit to you. You're obviously a really great human being and that is very evident. I'm sure it will come across in the podcast, but, wow, I'm super stoked that I got the chance to sit down with you and have you on, man. I appreciate that, man. This is really uh, really thoughtful questions. Um, I'm fortunate that I get to do a lot of these and talk to a lot of uh, really interesting people and and um, and um, sometimes and oftentimes even really interesting people, they kind of ask the same the same question because it's, you know, there are curiosities kind of lend to those, to those same areas, but you asked really thoughtful questions and re- unique questions that um, I'm, I'm not often asked. And so I think that's really, um, that really uh, shines true to who you are and that you really do have these interests and that you find these outliers, um, you know, of talking about stories where I've messed up and, and um and then you know asking about the like you had a you have a very good distinction of you know discovering talking about the lions and talking about bears and things along these lines is uh, really cool well there we go donnie vincent what a champion fellow he is and how about the way he can tell a story man the time just flew so quick obviously that was a long podcast it's an hour longer than i've ever done before but man, he can tell a story and the amount of experiences and stories that he has to tell, as you can hear from that, I think we just clipped the tip of the iceberg with him there. I could have sat there and talked to him for a week, but uh, big thanks to Donnie. Righto, on to next episode. This one's for the Spearos. We are live in person with the original gangster himself of spearfishing podcasts in Australia, the man himself, Isaac Shrek Daly. He's an absolute fucking champion. I was traveling down in Brizzy at the time. We caught up. I went on his podcast first, then he came on mine. We were heaps of beers deep at the time we started recording mine. So, uh, yeah, hang on to your seats there. It was a lot of good laughs. And, mate, this guy's an absolute champion. We talk about his podcast and talk about the impact that he's had on people's lives without him even really knowing it. Just having a podcast out 
for over 10 years. He's like 250 episodes deep. So, mate, he's an awesome guy. He's been mentoring me. I had an absolute ball with him. We're going to catch up in January, I think, and maybe do some diving together. Hope he's enjoy it, and we'll catch us then. If you like the show, do us a massive solid. Share it with your mates and subscribe to the podcast. It makes a big difference in getting our show's footprint out there so people can hear it. If you know someone you think would be good to have on or you want to hear more about a specific topic, hit us up on our Instagram page. It's at stalkoutdoors.podcast. I'll make contact with you and see if we can make it happen. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, enjoy whatever adventure you got planned and be safe out there.